All right. Hey, good evening. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here, and it's great to have you out here on a Saturday night. Isn't this amazing for the end of January to walk in here and be so warm and comfortable? So it's great to have you here. Our speaker, Dr. Christopher Yuan, last weekend was in Washington, D.C. So if you know anything about what happened to them last weekend, he's in a very different situation in Iowa, right? So you would never guess that. Um, but it's great to have you here tonight. And I know there are people from uh, several churches represented tonight. All of you are welcome here uh, tonight to be with us. Um, this will be a great evening. So um, basically, just to lay out a little format tonight, there will be um, two main sessions tonight. Um, this first one uh, is the title of the was just on the slide, Homosexuality, a look at uh, the biblical and her hermeneutic, hermeneutic view of that. If you don't know what that means, it means basically we're going to dig into what the Bible teaches on the subject of homosexuality. The second time, this, and we'll take a little break, and during the next session, we will talk about how Christianity, it's from Dr. Yuan, kind of equipping us on how the Christian community can respond uh, to uh, the homosexuality, homosexual community, the LGBT community in our area. And then there'll be a Q&A time. And I wanted to mention that because around some of the seats there, there are some cards. And if you would like to write a question down, this is something that you could turn in during the break. And at the tables right outside here where you picked up um, the handouts you have, you could leave your questions there. We'll also have mics. You can ask questions in that format as well. But if you'd rather write your questions down, you could do that. We also have cards there at the table if you don't have one near you. So feel free to do that. So um, I just want to say, too, this is um, an amazing topic we're getting to talk about tonight. I, I know in many places in our country, uh, this can be very controversial. And wherever you are, whatever your position is on these things coming in here tonight, you just need to know you are very welcome here, okay? This is a place to explore together um, and to have a man who has been gifted by God to help us understand what the Bible teaches on these topics. As we as a church has been pre have been preparing uh, for topics like this, our encouragement, uh, the, the challenge to me and and to the folks in our church is we want to walk like Jesus walked on this planet. When Jesus walked on the planet, he was full of grace and truth. And we want to understand tonight, well, you'll hear both of those very clearly from Dr. Yuan tonight. As we look into God's word, we want to know what the truth is on the subjects we're talking about. We want to be people who walk in a very gracious way as we look to apply that truth in our community. So, so it's great to have you here. Um, let me see if we can see them yet. Um, Leon and Angela, uh, Yuan, are with us, and they will be around the book table beforehand. And if you're here tomorrow, you will hear them speak. Are they here just so we can greet them? All right, why don't you guys stand up, and let's just give them a round of applause for being here. It's great to have them. <clears throat> Excellent. Uh, the, the Yuan family drove over from Chicago today, had great roads and all that, so it's great to have them all here. So uh, Angela and Christopher, our speaker tonight, have co-authored a book that's going to be available for you uh, in the foyer at the book table there. Um, it's called Out of a Far Country, and it's a gay son's journey to God, a broken mother's search for hope. And it's been a book that, is, that has helped many people throughout the country and would love for you to get a chance to, to see that book while you're here. And so let me introduce our speaker uh, tonight. So uh, Dr. Yu, and he'll tell you some of his story too, but he comes to us uh, with some training uh, as an undergrad at Moody Bible Institute. 
And then he, he has a master's degree in biblical exegesis uh, from Wheaton Graduate School. And um, I'm missing your demon here. Where did you do that again? At Bethel Seminary, he has a doctor of ministry from there. He's currently on the staff, on the faculty at Moody Bible Institute and teaches Bible there. And he also has been traveling uh, and writing as well, speaking at many conferences and many churches like this. So it's a great honor to have him here. So could you please join me in welcome, welcoming Dr. Christopher Yuan. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of life. Lord, apart from you, we do not have life. There was a time in which we thought we did, but we weren't, didn't realize the need for you. Lord, thank you that you are a God who opens our eyes, softens our hearts. And Lord, you continue to walk with us even though we are people who are weak and may be needy at times. Thank you, Lord God, that even in our unfaithfulness, Lord, you are faithful to us. God, thank you for this night. Thank you for Parkview. Thank you for uh, the witness of believers here in Iowa City and in Iowa. Lord, we pray that you would um, even do a work in us tonight. For we ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you know, there are few issues in the U.S. Uh, that bring so much emotion, like the issue of sexual identity. And when you see how the Christian faith and sexuality intersect, and how people might talk about this, whether it's your friends, or whether it's in school, or whether it's in media, Lord, we, uh, what we usually see is that it's often more like a culture war than a conversation. And to be honest, I think sometimes Christians, we sort of play into that too. And maybe even not even specifically anything that you might say, but just in our tone. So what I hope tonight to do is not at all to play any more into that culture war that I don't think really helps draw people closer to Christ, but I hope to be a part of the broader conversation to see how the good news of Jesus, the gospel, applies to this very relevant issue, not just the issue, but to our, to our LGBT loved ones and friends. But one of the questions that people often ask is, well, what does the Bible really say? Because often people say, well, it's an old book. And it's a book that was written 2,000 plus years ago that much of it we don't really hold to even if you are a strong believer. There's things that we hold to, there's things that we don't. So aren't we really picking and choosing? So that's always a very important question and we're gonna look at that. But I thought before I did that, I wanted to, to kind of invite you into my life. Why do I speak on this? Why, why does a Bible professor speak on this controversial issue of homosexuality? Well, first of all, I got to tell you, I didn't choose this. If I did, I, I would choose something much easier, you know, I don't know, like pulling teeth like my dad or something like that. <laughs> but this was not something that I really chose, but I know that God has specifically called me to. But why did I choose something like this? Because it's something that impacts me and my family very personally. 
I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but my parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values. I could tell you that in three things. Obey your parents, do well in school, and practice the piano. <laughs> See, I had this secret that I kept hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. I began dental school. I was, I, I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry like my dad, and I came out of the closet. And I told my parents, I am gay. This devastated my mom. Remember, she wasn't a Christian, and she thought that an ultimatum could bring me to my senses. Kind of typical tiger mom. And she said, you must either choose the family or choose that. She couldn't even say it. Well, this wasn't a choice for me. So I left home and I went back to Louisville. Devastated my mom. And she says, news of my death would have been better than receiving that news. Timing couldn't have been any worse. My parents' marriage was a wreck, a disaster. They actually began the paperwork for a divorce. So my mom was literally at the end of a rope found no more reason to live. And on the next day, she had resolved to do the unthinkable. She was going to end her life. For some reason, she felt the need to go see a minister. And remember, she's not a Christian. So just for some reason, right, she felt the need to go see a minister. And this minister gave her a little pamphlet, a little booklet on homosexuality. She bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville where I was going to school. She planned to say goodbye to me for the last time before ending it all. But took that one-way Amtrak ticket. She wasn't coming home. She boarded an train thinking that death was the only answer to all her problems. Never being much of a reader on the plane, on the train, she began reading that little booklet that shared with her the gospel. That all of us are sinners. Every one of us. And yet, the God of the universe still loves us. And God opened up the eyes of our heart to see that just as God can love her, in spite of her sin, she could love me, her gay son. So on this train, my mother became a Christian. And within a few months, my father did as well. You see, my mom had gone to Louisville, Kentucky, expecting to end her life. And in reality, she did. One of her favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ living in them prepared my parents for the difficult years ahead as I headed deeper and deeper into the world of homosexuality. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, I need to be very clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs or are even promiscuous. Some are, some are not. Just as some people who are not gay are promiscuous and some are not. Just as some do drugs and some do not. So we need to be careful not to make that assumption. However, 
I need to be authentic and truly honest in telling my story, but I also want to tell you that when you encounter the living Jesus Christ, he will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but remember I was a dental student, which meant I didn't have much money. So I supported my habit by selling drugs, and I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. You know my dad's a dentist, and he knew, the, he knew the dean really well. All they needed to do was to threaten the lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? Well, to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And they said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. Well, I got to tell you, I was not happy about their decision. They were not on my side. They were on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene of the gay community. I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no idea that I was doing drugs or even selling drugs, but they knew my biggest need above anything else was know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to me with the love of Christ, and I wanted nothing to do with them or their newfound religion. My parents came to visit me one time in Atlanta, and I told them to get out. I had enough. My dad, before he left, wanted to give me something before he left. It was his very first Bible. It was all had the notes in the margins, it was, all, it was all dog-eared. And I told my dad, I don't want your Bible. I didn't even want him to think that I actually might read it. But my dad left in my kitchen counter anyway and walked out the door. And as soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God, nothing to do with their newfound religion, and nothing to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was more than obvious to my parents that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus upon the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. 
And my mother began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle. She would literally spend hours every morning in her prayer closet, interceding on my behalf. She knew that... she knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle. She prayed, she would spend hours every morning in her prayer closet interceding on my behalf. And she prayed for a miracle. They prayed for a miracle, and a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with a street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in the federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words. Just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice that it doesn't say it's God's anger. It's not God's judgment, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not. Because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down. She reached out next to the phone was a calculator. She tore off a little piece of the anatomy sheet tape and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before. <laughs> and he called home for the very first time. 
as my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And today this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block and I passed by this garbage can and I thought, my life right now is like this trash. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months, only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up. It was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell and I opened up that, that good book and for the first time I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I was not thinking this is the answer to all my problems. I was simply thinking I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. <laughs> but as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, beloved, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to, to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. They handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into the nurse's office. She shut the door behind me, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years certainly much better than 10 years to life that I was facing. But news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night I was lying in my bed. I was in my cell all by myself. And I looked up at the metal bunk above me. There's graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something in the corner and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have 
for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, God was using the words written by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past, he still, he still had a plan for me. I had no idea where this plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual and God was convicting me of the dependencies in my life, which were many. The most obvious drugs. But within a few months, God delivered me from the bondage of that addiction. But the last thing that I was holding on to was my sexuality. You know, I was reading through the Bible. It was so clear to me. God loved me unconditionally. But I also came across passages in the Bible, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. Three in the old, three in the new, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion on this issue, and to my surprise, this chaplain told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book from his shelf, and he said, here, this book explains that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And let me just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming, to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear assertion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against same-sex sexual intimacy. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find anything. I wanted to find any type of a positive affirmation for a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went cover to cover several times I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous gay relationship by allowing my feelings to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship by freeing myself from my sexuality, by freeing myself from my attractions, and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality does not need to be the core of who I am. 
You know, I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. That's true, but then I added to God's truth. Don't we like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore he doesn't want me to change. But I realize now after reading the Bible several times that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined just by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my attractions only. My identity is not gay, ex-gay, or even, get this, or even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. You know, I had told myself before that, or I, I had thought that if I wanted to become a Christian, I would have to become a heterosexual. That somehow the more straight I was, the more pleasing I would be to God. But I realized that even if I had heterosexual feelings, I would still struggle with sin. I would still need to die to self daily. So I realized that that is not the goal for a Christian. And besides, God never said, be heterosexual for I am heterosexual. But neither did he say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the goal. That should never be held up as the goal. But rather, the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of any sin struggle is holiness. I shouldn't focus upon whether I might still be tempted or not. I don't need to focus upon trying to just manage my behavior or manage my feelings. But rather what I need to do is focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of temptations. God does not tell you, come to Jesus and you'll never be tempted with sin again. No, change is not the absence of temptations, but rather change is the ability to be holy, not on my own strength, but be holy by the power of the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not what I'm struggling with, not whether I might still be tempted or not, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether in prison or out of prison, because my calling would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called up collecting my parents, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling out until I realized I needed references, not from anybody, but specifically people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. 
I was amazing, yes. Uh, I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answer their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I was released, uh, I, I was released, I graduated from Moody in 2005. Um, <laughs> see, yeah, prison, Moody, pretty close. Um, you know, people ask, why you go to Moody? There's so many rules. Try prison first. This is freedom, really. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I graduated from Moody 2005, went out to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, just received my doctorate of ministry in 2014 from Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, where actually I did my research on sexuality and, and uh, reducing marginalization of LGB and SSA students at Christian colleges and universities. Um, and actually, I'm, it's going to be published in June. Um, uh, and, but I also, our, my first book, uh, I did not write by myself. I wrote it with my mom. How cool is that? I wrote this with my mom. Uh, the book is called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote this together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two. She wrote chapter three. So they're alternating narratives with interwoven chapters because we wanted to tell you from our own first person voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives. And yet God and his power and his grace brought us all back together. In the back of every book is is an eight-week free discussion guide. And actually our book has been translated into five languages so far. Let's see if I can remember them. Uh, German, Spanish, Chinese, Spanish, Slavic, and Korean. Um, Amazing. The book of every book in every language Um, we have an eight-week discussion guide that actually many small groups and many cell groups are using as as curriculum and as a resource to continue the conversation, not just on sexuality and holy sexuality. There's a chapter in my book on holy sexuality, but also um, to continue the conversation on prodigals, on unanswered prayer. We've also found out that many Christian high schools are using our book as a textbook. And it makes sense. Because I don't know if you realize this or not, but this younger generation, they are being flooded, inundated with resources on sexuality, almost all from a non-Christian world view. And there are so few that we can actually give to our kids that they will actually read, and that actually points them to a gospel answer. Not an orientation answer, but a gospel answer. And uh, so, you know, some, well, this one time this lady went back to our book table, which we have back there, and she said, I want seven books. And we're like, you just need one. She was a little old lady. She was like 80 some years old. And uh, she got eight books. And, I'm, and I was like, you just need one. She's like, no, I need eight. One for myself and seven for my grandchildren. Every one of them needs to learn about biblical sexuality. The choice is ours. Will we continue to stand by and allow the world to teach this younger generation about sex and sexuality, or will we seize this opportunity to equip them? Silence is not, no longer an option. 
Amazingly, God has given us back the years that locusts have taken away. So my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and truth on this issue of sexuality. But if you remember earlier, I, I talked about uh, that there is this big question that people often ask Christians. Well, what does the Bible really say? Now, there were handouts when you walked in, but if you wanted a digital copy of my notes, and I'm going to go pretty fast because we have a uh, kind of, we're, we're trying to get all this good information in, and this is, this is going to be, this is a, a lot of information, and, and I'm going to uh, hopefully try to make you think, and it's going to be probably feel like drinking through a fire hydrant so if you have a handout that's great if you want the digital copy that's great there's a QR code that you can scan if you don't know what QR code is that's okay <laughs> just jot down the, the, the website the code that's a shortened URL there and it'll link you to even if you have a smartphones now or smart readers uh, you can view that and um, just by the way, when you do and, and open up that link or open up this QR code link, um, it, you'll, you might be asked to sign up for an account with Dropbox or sign it. You don't have to. You can just escape or click out of that and just view. The, it's a PDF digital um, file with all my notes. So there's a lot of um, <clears throat> kind of debate on this. Though we evangelical Christians, we generally agree and say, no, the Bible is, is pretty clear. We know that some other people who are Christians, more, maybe more kind of uh, liberal uh, mainline denominations that where this is not an issue and, and, and they think that the Bible and the church for the past 2,000 years has, has, has gotten this wrong. And so uh, they are embracing of same-sex relationships. But there are now becoming, a, you know, a people who stand up and say, I am evangelical, and I believe that this is not a sin. And most evangelicals will think, how in the world do they come to that? Well, we're going to discuss that today. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through these passages and I'm actually going to discuss and explain the gay-affirming interpretation. And then I'm going to respond to that. If you remember back in my testimony, I went to Moody, I went to Wheaton, I went to uh, Bethel. And during my time starting at Moody, I was actually able to take biblical languages. And I know that most people who go to seminary, uh, biblical languages is kind of like their thorn in their flesh. I actually liked it. I don't know, you know, maybe I just like pain, but uh, I actually liked it. Uh, it's kind of that nerd. I, I, to be honest, I'm fascinated with, with the fact that sounds, uh, you know, I'm talking right now, it's basically just sounds. And yet these sounds, we can put them together to mean something. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, and not even just that. You can have a piece of paper and make some scratches down there, and that's, those scratches mean something. Those marks on the paper mean something. That's fascinating to me. So I actually, I mean, I didn't realize this when I was younger, but I, I love studying languages. I, mean, I, I, I grew up being able to speak Chinese and English, so I was able to not kind of um, get so set into being like, um, like a monolingual, because I think that's usually, when you get so stuck in one language, it's harder to learn other languages. But uh, so I was able to study uh, Greek and Hebrew. And, um, but at that time, I had no clue what I was doing with it. I knew I loved the Word of God, and I knew that if I wanted to really study God's Word and, and dig deeper, that, that knowing biblical languages was definitely going to benefit. So I went through Moody, but I knew two years of Hebrew and two years of Greek wasn't enough. He was just scratching the surface. I was just learning the language. I wasn't really learning, you know, two years of 
two years of one language just barely help you to learn the language, and then you, I need to learn how to now interpret and exegete. So I, I got into this program at Wheaton Exegesis, and where it actually studied both Hebrew and Greek, but even at that point, I didn't know what I was going to do, but God did. And he knew that he was calling me and he was going to be placing me into this ministry on sexual identity and especially how faith and sexuality intersect. And he knew that one of the contentious points is interpretation and how often people will use and misuse biblical languages. So what I'm going to present here is kind of the, a gay-affirming the, uh, interpretation, but I'm going to respond to that. But I want to be very, very clear. Do not view this as more ammunition that you can tuck away into your belt to go do battle with those people. Because really, from my experience, debating rarely draws people closer to Jesus. But it's Relationships. So then what is this information for? It's for us. Because there is, in the body of Christ, evangelical body of Christ, and I mean, I think, I mean, the body of Christ are believers, and so anyone who believes in Christ is in the body of Christ. So I don't have to put any kind of uh, modifier by it. But in the body of Christ, I think there are people who are now becoming to be more confused, especially this younger generation that is, they're being, you know, bombarded with these questions, and they don't know how to engage them. So this is really for us. So before we jump into the text, we're going to uh, look at something more important, and it's hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, as Pastor Doug was saying, I mean, it's talking about interpretation. Specifically, in seminary, we learned it to be the science and art of interpretation. And of course, when we're talking about the Bible, it's the science and art of biblical interpretation. So think about it as your methodology of interpretation. As a matter of fact, if you studied English, literature, any type, French literature, whatever, you would have to study hermeneutics. I mean, if you're at the you know, graduate level, you will definitely need to study hermeneutics. Because what is your methodology, your approach, your, your the, the, the procedures of interpretation will great, you, greatly impact the way that you read a text. So what is um, the, in hermeneutics, the, our prioritization, our, our methodology in a sense, for those of us who hold to a traditional view of sexuality. And, and I'll have to be honest, I don't really like this, this, this name, traditional, uh, because traditions are, are usually man-made. I don't want to be traditional. I want to be biblical. So I, I like biblical better, but this is usually the term that's, that's given to us, to those of us. And what is the traditional view of sexuality? We believe that God has reserved sexual intimacy to be between, in the context of marriage, between a husband and wife. Anything outside of that is not something that God would bless. So those of us who hold to a traditional, a biblical view of sexuality, have a prioritization of our hermeneutics. Up at the very, very top, we have the Word of God, Scripture. And what does that mean? Well, first of all, of course, we believe that the Word of God, it's inerrant, it's infallible. So we have a high view of Scripture. And I know sometimes people say, well, I have a high view of Scripture too. But note that a high view of Scripture does not guarantee high Bible IQ. Someone might ha say, I have a high view of Scripture, and they don't really know that much about the Bible. So... Um, 
having scripture at the very top does not just mean that we hold, have a high view of scripture, that we believe that the word of God is inerrant and infallible, but it has to do with how we interpret the word of God. And one of the important things is that we believe that scripture helps scripture to be understood. When, we, when we're interpreting things that sometimes scripture interprets scripture. Because those in the mainline denominations, how do they get to their crazy interpretations? Because they read like this. They do not read things in context. You could take a text out of context and make it say anything you want. And so how do you avoid false interpretations? How do you avoid heresy? You read the Bible in context. But not just like say if you're reading something out of Romans 6 that you're reading a passage and you're looking at the whole chapter. Guess what? You need to read it in light of the whole book. You also need to read it in light of all the books that Paul wrote. You also need to read it in light of the whole New Testament. You also need to read it in the light of the whole Bible. So we read this, we call this not just reading it contextually, but more specifically, canonically, right? We call the canon, the full 66 books of the Bible. So holding to that, that top, the scripture up at the very, very top means that we, we believe the Bible is inerrant, it's infallible, there mean there's no errors, but also we read things contextually and canonically. That's key because as you'll see, the, the, the wrong interpretation, they do not read things contextually and canonically. They try to, they try to read it contextually, but it's a wrong context. For example, I mean, you know, if, if a couple hundred years from now, let's say they find a manuscript. You know, let's say you guys are taking notes right now, okay? They find your notes, and they're like, wow, what does all this mean? Well, they say, well, we need to read it in, in, in its historical context, Okay, so they find some books about Russia in 2016. And they say, okay, well, you see that? That's what this means, and they're using that. So you see how sometimes you could be in the right time period, but totally wrong context. We're not Russia, you following me? And so that's a big mistake, you know, of a lot of times what people are making. So I'm, I'm kind of giving you guys a Bible lesson. Are you guys, you know? So I'll give you guys all a grade when you leave here. And a quiz. So, but those who hold to, uh, so then underneath that reason and science. Now, sometimes people believe that sometimes they're in contradiction. I do not. I do not believe that somehow reason and science, nature, etc., somehow contradict each other. Because, I mean, when we look at nature even, that's God's general revelation. When we look at God's word, that's God's special revelation. God's special revelation leads us to salvation. God's general revelation reveals God and actually, in a sense, condemns us because we reject God, right? If we're, uh, uh, you know, by our own will. So I don't believe that those two contradict each other. I believe that they do uh, agree and, and they kind of, uh, they complement each other. Then third, experience. And that's important because sometimes we discount that or we try to kind of completely turn it off. But I think we need to use our experience because our experience can help us apply God's word. But be careful that our experience should never interpret God's word or reinterpret God's word. So those who hold to a non-traditional view, often, oftentimes called a progressive, right? We've heard that before, very progressive. Well, I believe that's a misnomer. And I'll tell you why. Because progressive means you're moving forward, leaving behind the old past and not going back to the past. Because if you go back to the past, that's not progressive. So progressive, evolving, becoming better and better, well, that's not historically accurate because let me tell you why. When I look at in, um, in ancient times, 
when I look at um, before kind of Christianity came about, so, you know, maybe uh, a few centuries, you know, before, uh, uh, before Christ came, the Greco-Roman world, homosexuality was very accepted then. When I go back to ancient Israel and I look at all the pagan nations around Israel at that time, it, homosexuality was very accepted at that time. So really, progressive is not really historically accurate. Maybe regressive. So that would actually be a more accurate term. But that's kind of snarky, so I'm not really going to use that term. Uh, but people have begun using this term, and it's revisionist. And the reason why revisionist is used, as opposed to kind of the more liberal, is because there are actually two different interpretations. Let me tell you about the liberal, and we're not really talking about them. Liberal Christians will say, you know what, you're right, I agree that, with you that that's what the Bible says, but you know what, it's wrong. That, that's usually how the liberal Christians, I mean, they're like, well, you, you know, there's parts of the Bible that are good, there, there are parts that are bad, and, and I'm, I'll just, you know, I don't like that part, so that's not right. And there's no way that could be right, you know, because that's just, that's just you know, whatever. So that's kind of liberal Christian. But now revisionists, they will say, you know, they, they will say, no, I, I, I'm not like those, those liberal Christians. Where I, you know, I, I think that it, it, it is condemning something, but it's not condemning monogamous same-sex relationships. That's usually how revisionists will understand that. So what we find here is an inverted hermeneutics where no longer is scripture at the very top, but guess what? It's experience. Seldom do I hear someone who moved from a biblical view of sexuality to a revisionist view of sexuality whose testimony didn't go something like this. My son is gay. My best friend is gay. And they love Jesus. So how could this be wrong? What they're doing is they're making their experience trump everything else. I shouldn't use that word. Um, <laughs> usurp. Um, Go ahead. Um, then underneath that we have reason and science. Um, so reason and science, an argument that is often made is that um, it's, it's believed that, you know, Moses and Paul did not understand the modern concept of sexual orientation because we, we're so advanced today. We, we are, we're, we're so much far ahead, you know, in our understanding of sexuality. And, and I mean, whenever people say that, that, you know, they don't understand the modern concept of, of sexual orientation like we do today. And I want to tell you, I, wanna, I always want to ask when people say that, okay, tell me exactly, give me a definition for sexual orientation. I mean, I've been doing research on that. I mean, there's, I mean, it's so nebulous and it's so vague and it's so abstract. And so what exactly do we really know about? So anyway, but that's the argument that's made. Paul and Moses didn't understand the concept of sexual orientation, so that's not what they were talking about. You know, that people, this is just the way they are. They're born this way and they can't change. And so, you know, they're not talking about loving monogamous relationships. So that's the kind of the second point. The third point is scripture. Now, people who hold to revisions aren't saying that they don't believe, you know, that they hold to a low view of scripture. They view to a high view of scripture. But they say, well, the Bible only talks about love. I mean, the Bible is really about love. And we're called to love one another. So what's wrong with this? So I'm going to be talking about all these things, but we're going to now jump into the different texts. And we're going to talk about, first, the Old Testament passages. And one thing that I need to note, that I mentioned earlier, that generally for all these passages, revisions, what they do is they look at these passages and they say, this is condemning something. They agree with us. It's condemning something. It's sin, but it's not condemning monogamous, loving, adult, consensual, gay relationships. That's, that's generally what they're saying. So remember that for all of these. 
another thing is, before we jump into these Old Testament passages, is whenever you look at an Old Testament passage, it's not even related to homosexuality, any Old Testament passage, two things you need to look first ask yourselves. First, what does this passage mean? What is it saying? Second question we need to ask ourselves is, does this passage apply to us today? Two important questions. What does it mean? What does it say? Second, does it apply to us today? So, I'm going to answer those questions as we go. I mean, we're going to be going in through and first looking at what the passage says. But as we go along, I'm going to kind of help understand that second aspect. How do we know whether an Old Testament passage applies to us today? Because there is truth to the fact. I mean, from the surface level, a person who's not a Christian that doesn't really understand our faith and, and how we live, they're like, well, you're, you're not doing this, but you are sticking to this. And you're, okay, you're, you're, you're eating pork, but then, you know, you, you, know you, you, you say, okay, don't murder, okay, but then, you know, you know, all these different things. So, so why, why is that? It looks like you're picking and choosing. So, I mean, that's an important question to ask. So Genesis 19, what does this passage mean? For those who hold to revisionists, I mean, well, traditionally it's held that Sodom was destroyed because of the sin of homosexuality. Now, revisionists say that that's not what is being condemned here. It's not the sin of homosexuality. They were obviously destroyed. I mean, you can't get around that. But why were they destroyed? Now, revisionists, there's two ways that they take it. One is they say they were destroyed because of the sin of gang rape. So what's going on here? Well, they'll, they'll, again, they'll say it's not condemning monogamous gay relationships. I mean, if you read Genesis 19, it's, it's not two gay men that are in, in a marriage and they're in a monogamous relationship and, that, and they're destroyed because of that. I mean, so I, I'm, I'm kind of putting on this hat of a revisionist. I'm just giving the argument because I'm doing that to show how if you, if, you, if you kind of have this kind of fragile, if you don't have a deep understanding of the word of God, it's very convincing. And if you're a winsome communicator, like there's a lot out there, Matthew Vines, Justin Lee, very winsome, nice people, I know them. It's easy to say, hmm, maybe you're right. So I'm just going to kind of explain it from, from their perspective, of course, that I don't hold to. So in ancient times, gang rape was very common, especially in warfare that when men would kind of conquer a city or a people group, they would take the women and children, they would take the men, and they would hold them prisoners. Sometimes they would just kill off the men, or they will torture the men. And they would say, I just conquered you, I'm stronger than you, I'm in domination over you, and I'm going to humiliate you. How would they do that? Many different ways. Sometimes torture them. Sometimes they would do sexual acts on them. Not as a way of like, uh, uh, like they were aroused by it, but as just showing you are animal. And if you look at modern times, people haven't changed that much, unfortunately. So, the argument goes, that is what is being condemned here. Now I'm going to leave that and go to the second argument, and I'll respond to these later. Uh, so, second argument is, what is being condemned here is not gang rape, but the sin of inhospitality. I know, bizarre, right? How many of you guys have heard this before, though? Because it's actually one of the most, it is the most common reinterpretation of Genesis 19. And you think this is so bizarre. How would anyone in the right mind understand this? A lot do, and I'll tell you, and I'll kind of explain this. So, those who are visionists say something like this. The word Sodom, just, just that the, the, Sodom is only mentioned, I mean not only, is mentioned many times, it's mentioned 27 times outside the book of Genesis. Every time that it's mentioned outside the book of Genesis, Old Testament, New Testament, not once do we find anything related specifically to homosexuality. Hmm. 
In addition, the prophet Ezekiel, inspired by the word of God, right, or inspired to record the word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote this. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. This was a sin of her sister Sodom. She was arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. She, uh, she did not help the poor and needy. So nothing about homosexuality there. And if you read that, it sounds more like inhospitality. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 10 says, If anyone will not welcome you or show you hospitality, shake the dust off your feet. It will be more bearable than Sodom than on, the day, uh, than on that day of judgment than for that town. They will sometimes go to the uh, biblical language, uh, the, the, the biblical language, the Hebrew, and they'll look, break it down to this one word. Genesis 19.5, it says, um, where the men of Sodom banged on Lot's doors. They said, bring these men out so we can have sex with them. Well, literally, it's not to have sex with. It's bring these men out so we can know them. So the argument for revisionists say that word know, the majority of the time, it means just to know, to know intellectually or know relationally. So what these men want to do was just to get to know them, hang out with them. That's what they wanted. You don't want to have sex with them. So how do we respond to these things? Well, first of all, before we do that, we need to ask ourselves, what does this really mean? Do, is this a passage that we go to say, this is proving that homosexuality is sin? Is this a proof text? Now, I've got to be honest, it's really not. Not to say, that, I'm not saying that it is sin, but this isn't like one of those proof texts to say, this is what it's showing. That's not the purpose of this passage. The purpose of Genesis 19 is not to show that homosexuality is sin. Well, what does it mean? We have to read things in context. When we look at Genesis, we find that Sodom was mentioned two other times before Genesis 19, in Genesis 13 and Genesis 18. Genesis 13 is when Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, remember they quarreled? And they kind of, uh, Abraham and I had this idea for them to split apart. And Abraham said, either you choose this side or that side, and Lot went that, in that direction because it was well watered. It looked like it was nice land. Well, it happened to be that's also where Sodom and Gomorrah were. Then we get this kind of, kind of parenthetical thought that said that the people of Sodom were exceedingly wicked. Not just a little bit wicked, but exceedingly wicked. So they were already guilty in Genesis 13 before anything even happened in Genesis 19. So they were actually, you know, they, they, they deserve God's God's justice at that point, God's wrath at that point. But God was patient, long-suffering, slow to anger, and he waited and he allowed them some more time to repent. But Genesis 18 came along and they didn't. And so God said, I'm going to destroy them. And Abraham went back and forth with God. What well, about 50 righteous people, 40 righteous people, 40, 30, 20, right? 10. So God sends two angels, didn't even find 10, and he destroys the city but saves Lot um, and his two daughters. So, really, the meaning of Genesis 19 is to tell us that God is always justified when he displays his just wrath. Christians, I think, sometimes are afraid to talk about God's wrath, but God's wrath is part of his character. God's justice is part of his char character. And if it's part of his character, then we should know, know lessen God's, one of his characters, like wrath, than God's character that we like, like God's love. So, and actually, every time that we see Sodom mentioned in the Bible, it's always mentioned in the context of destruction. 
So Sodom was a symbol of God, of destruction, of God's wrath, God's just wrath. So then that helps us understand what is the meaning. What was the sin? Well, we don't know specifically, but most likely it's a lot of sins. So very likely it was probably sin, uh, you know, it was probably gang rape. It was probably inhospitality. It was probably homosexuality. Well, why homosexuality? Well, in Ezekiel 16, 50, remember, whenever you read things, read a text, you have to read it in context. The following verse, remember, Ezekiel was a passage, this was the sin of your sister Sodom, arrogant, overfed, etc. Well, the following verse says this, they were haughty, and committed or did an abomination before me. That word abomination is a very specific word that we see several times in the Old Testament, but it's still very specific, especially when it's used in the singular form and when it, when it is used with this verb did or committed. Because guess where we else we might see those two words, did an abomination, in Leviticus. What biblical writers often did was they didn't always have to quote an entire verse for people to know what they were referring to. What biblical writers remember because back then they knew their Bible. If you were Jewish, you memorized the Torah. Memorized it. I mean, we can't even memorize like, you know, a chapter, right? I mean, we struggle with like memorizing a verse. They memorized like the Torah. The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. So, I mean, so what these biblical writers w would do, w they would just mention two, two words that are very unique to that passage, right? I mean, you wouldn't just mention two words that are just kind of very common. It's very specific words. So that you, being a person who knew the Bible, when those two words are mentioned, you know, oh, that's what he's mentioned, that verse there. But of course, back then they didn't have verses, but they know that passage there. So that is exactly what Ezekiel, the prophet, inspired by God, did. He mentioned two words, did an abomination, so that he was linking the sin of Sodom with the sin in Leviticus. Remember when I said what it means to hold scripture at the very, very top? It doesn't, doesn't just mean that you, hold, that you hold it to be inerrant. It means that you read things contextually. So actually, when you read the Bible, what you really should be doing as well is connecting the dots from this verse to that verse to that verse. Remember when you guys were kids and you guys would do connect the dots? The Bible is the greatest connect the dot. It is just a tapestry. Tapestry of connections here, there, all over the place. Ezekiel is connecting two verses together. Leviticus, Genesis 19. It's the same sin. So the question is, what is the sin found in Leviticus? We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but I need to answer this question about that word to know. Does that mean to know just intellectually or relationally, or does it mean something else? Well, context helps us. For example, in Genesis 4, it says, Adam knew his wife Eve. If that's all we had, we didn't know what exactly that means. I mean, did it mean, hi, my name's Adam, my name's Eve, let's hang out, let's get married, let's, you know, chill. Is that, I mean, maybe that could be if we didn't have any more information, we wouldn't know. If we didn't have any more context, we would not know. Well, guess what we do? Because what follows is this. And Eve became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. So, does a handshake make you pregnant? <laughs> if you think so, let's talk afterward. 
But context always guides us. In Genesis 19, we have context because three verses later, we find that same verb to know. Where Lot says, my daughters have never known a man. We can't have one definition in one verse and three verses later use a different definition. So it's, it's the same Meaning, I mean, is it possible that Lot's daughters never knew men before? Like they never didn't, they didn't know them intellectually. They didn't know them relationally. Like they you know, never met them before. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they were homeschooled, but most likely not. <laughs> most likely not. So it's, it's very unlikely that, that there is anything other than a clear sexual connotation here. So the context, 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 it always helps us. Now let's move on to Leviticus. In Leviticus, uh, I'm just going to read it to you so you're familiar with it. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. That's 1822. 2013 says this. If there's a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Did abomination, right? Those two words. They shall surely be put to death. Now, revisionists admit that this is one of the harder passages, one of the hardest passages to get around. It's so clear. Man lying with a male, don't do it. What else do you need to say? So how do people get around it? Again, they say it's condemning something but not monogamous same-sex relationships. How do they do that? They try to use context. In 1821, the preceding verse, it is talking about don't sacrifice your child to Molech, which is a pagan god. So the argument for Rich Vision is to say 1821 is about pagan idolatry, and so therefore 1822 is also about pagan idolatry. So what they say is what Moses is condemning here is male temple, idol temple prostitution in pagan worship. That was something that happened back then. And uh, just as they would sacrifice children to idols, they would also have sex in the temple as a form of worship. So, um, so they say this only refers to ma- uh, pagan temple prostitution, male temple prostitution. So in other words, monogamous same-sex relationships is really okay, just not when it is related to pagan ritual practices. In addition, people look at that word abomination and say that doesn't refer to immorality anymore. It just refers to uncleanness because don't you know, shellfish is called an abomination, right? I mean, how many of you guys are tired of hearing that, right? Shellfish. How many of you guys like lobster, shrimp, crab, yum, okay? Um, so, the, you know, people who, who hear you're a Christian, they say, well, you know, well, you eat shellfish. That, the Bible says an abomination. Well, then, if you don't think that that's an abomination anymore, then why do you think homosexuality is still an abomination? And if you're a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old and, and you're, a new, you know, you're a Christian, oftentimes you don't know how to answer those and you get beat up pretty bad. You don't know how to answer those. That, and that's why we really need to equip our, this younger generation on these issues. So, you know, abomination. It's just, uh, just referring to uncleanness. Or they'll look at the Holiness Code, which is a bunch of chapters in Leviticus where we find these chapters. It's Leviticus 17 through 26. So look at all these things that are mentioned in these few chapters. And, and people will say, look, I mean, we don't hold to, the, to these things anymore. And yet the Bible is condemning these. So we can't pick and choose. And so, I mean, you know, you're, you're picking and choosing if you say that homosexuality is a sin. Men's, uh, 
in ancient Israel, a man was not supposed to even touch his wife during that time of month. Uh, mating different animals, mixing seed or mixing fabric was not allowed, cutting your sideburns. So let's respond to these from the very top though. I'm going to start with the very first one. Is Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13 referring to, it's only referring to homosexuality that occurs in an idol temple. Well, the problem with that is there's a, there's a specific word for male temple prostitutes, and it's the Hebrew word kedeshim that we find in Leviticus, I'm sorry, that we find in Deuteronomy, and the, that we also find in Job. So this was a, a word that would be familiar to um, the people that Moses was writing to. He would not have to be so, you know, clear, man lying with a male. He could have just used the word kedeshim, but he didn't. In addition, context always guides us in the correct interpretation because we find that there is no narrowing of the scope of, say, incest, which is mentioned in Leviticus. It's a universal condemnation. It's not referring to only kind of bad forms of incest or idolatrous forms of incest. Incest is always wrong. Even 1821, referring to sacrificing your child to Molech, is that a universal condemnation? Or is that only a condemnation that only sac don't sacrifice your child when you're worshiping a pagan god? You know, I know parents, sometimes you want to sacrifice your children, but it's still wrong at all times. So you see context, context. And how about that word abomination or toavah? Does that refer to immorality? Or does context guide us? Context does, because in Proverbs 6, it says there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination, and it lists things like lying. Uh, Hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked schemes, dissension, false witness. And actually the word to talk, uh, talk about uh, an abomination, uh, about homosexuality as an abomination, and shellfish as an abomination in Leviticus 13, it's a different Hebrew word. And it's the Hebrew word sheketz. And this Hebrew word sheketz is not as strong of a word that does, is, doesn't have that as strong of a meaning. And more importantly, why do we no longer as Christians hold to the food laws of the Old Testament? Why is that? Why are we, why are we able to eat shellfish? Why are we e able to eat shrimp? Why are we able to eat pork? And can I just pause? Can I get just a hallelujah for bacon? Okay? <laughs> hallelujah. Right? I mean, hallelujah that we can eat bacon. Can, I mean, can you imagine? Hallelujah. Um... Why is that? Why, why, remember, okay, so we got the first part of the question, we're answering, we're looking at what the passages mean, but second is, does this passage apply to us today? So why are there some passages that don't apply to us today? If the New Testament tells us. New Testament is the guide. So why do we do that? Well, I'll start with Acts chapter 10. Peter gets that vision dropping from heaven. I call it the big picnic spread from heaven. And there's all this unclean food, so I'm imagining like a big Chinese buffet, okay? So all this unclean food, and you know, the voice from heaven says, take and eat, and Peter's like, I can't, it's all unclean, nothing un unclean has touched my, my lips. What does the voice from heaven say? Don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. In so doing, opening the door for us Gentiles, amen. <laughs> but also, Clearly saying that all food laws have been fulfilled. Actually, all those unclean things in the Old Testament, anything that is called unclean, has been now made clean through the blood of the Lamb. How amazing is that? 
That's amazing. So that's why the New Testament is our guide. So those unclean things in the that's why, I mean, you know, when we talk to people and they ask that question, I just say, read the New Testament first. You'll get the answer. Let me help you read it. You know, I mean, that's, that's the guide. And even, even Paul himself says, do not destroy the work of God for food, for the sake of food. Jesus says, it's not what goes into a mouth, but what comes out of a mouth. In addition, context also helps us because these are not good analogies. How do we know that certain things are unclean and are, are, are moral and not moral issues? Well, look at the penalty. Because, for example, those things that mentioned, like, a man in ancient Israel, maybe he touches his wife during that time of month, or let's just say he's sexually intimate with his wife during that time of month. What is his penalty? The Old Testament says that he would be unclean for seven days. He'd be cast out for seven days. But what happens after seven days? He could come back to the community. I mean, he'd have to go through a process of cleansing, and then he'd be accepted back to normal. So unclean, I could recover from that. So what's the penalty for maybe mixing seed in your field? You would throw out your crop. Was the penalty if you're, uh, you know, ancient Israel and you're a man or woman in that time, you're Jewish, and you would maybe uh, have, have, a, have a garment of mixed fabric, you would throw that fabric out. If you were a Jewish man and you side your side, shave your sideburns, was the penalty? You'd be unclean until you, sh- you grew it out. My favorite uh, that I like to talk about is this. What's the penalty for eating shellfish? You'd be unclean until evening. So if you had a late night snack, you could make it worthwhile. You got to weigh your options. You got to. <laughs> then what's the penalty for homosexuality? Death. Death. I know, and a lot of times Christians were cautious to say that because when we say that, People think we're saying, okay, well, you believe this is sin, so you must believe that we need to put them to death. Of course not. Because justice belongs to who? To God. But I'm going to say something very radical. You have to hear me out. Because I do believe the death penalty still stands, and I'll tell you why. Because when I read the New Testament, Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. So it doesn't matter whether you said a lie. It doesn't matter if you were a little bit jealous. We all deserve death. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, we today still need a Savior. 2,000 years ago, they needed a Savior. Today, we still need a Savior. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. That is not just a message for the gay community. This is a message for the world. This uh, is just, it might look like Greek to you, but it's not, it's Hebrew. And sometimes I do you know, talk to seminarians and, and Bible students, but you can actually read it in, in your Greek, uh, I mean, your, in your English Bibles. It's actually Leviticus 18.22, so you read it from right to left. And at the very end, those last two words, it says, it is an abomination. It's three words translated to English, but it's uh, Hebrew, two Hebrew words. But note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say they are an abomination. It does not say he is an abomination. Rather... It. And what's the significance of that? Not the person, but the act. Our sin is an abomination to God. So when people like to, those, like, like to go to those gay pride parades and hold up those signs and say, you are abomination, they're preaching heresy. They're not preaching the word of God. 
Then another um, group of, uh, another theme is David and Jonathan. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this before, but did you know they were lovers, according to some? Yeah, I know you think that's crazy, but just look at these passages and see how convincing it can be. If, again, if you, if you didn't have a, a strong, a deep biblical understanding, their love was more wonderful than that of women. Hmm. They became one. Jonathan took off his robe. They kissed and they wept. Now let me just tell you, don't we live in a hyper-sexualized world? Really? Two people loving each other? They must be sleeping together. There's something going on. Why is it? Why can't two men love one another and not people jump to the conclusion that they must be gay or they're sleeping together? I mean, doesn't the Bible say love your neighbor as yourself? I mean, does that just mean love your opposite sex neighbor? As, which, you know, anyway. No. And, and we, need to, we need to just declare and, and just fight the lie of the world that love equals sex. It doesn't. Love does not equal sex. And sex is not even the highest expression of love. I'll tell you what the highest expression of love is. Jesus. Jesus. Dying for the world. That is love. And it's, we sh men, you should not be afraid to say, I do have love that's more wonderful than even my wife. And that's my love for God. I hope you say that. I hope you do. And God's love for us is greater than any love. And that's not sexual at all. And you know, Notice that though they became one, they didn't become one flesh. Big difference. They became one soul. They never, the, the, the writer of, you know, in First Kings and First Chronicles never does it mention that, you know, Jonathan and David ever, ever slept together, ever knew each other. And let's just be honest. If you know the life of David, his issue was not men. <laughs> Seriously, it was women. I mean, how many women can you have? I mean, it's so ludicrous to even think that, that he was gay. Like, if he really was gay, he's on his rooftop of his palace, happened to look upon be beautiful Bathsheba bathing. If he was gay, he would not say, she's hot, I want to have sex with her. No. I mean, maybe I love her decorator, I like her robe, but not I want to have sex with her. I mean, it's so, it's, it's so outside the realm of possibility. And Jonathan uh, was married. He had wife and even children. So, you know, so unlikely. Also, slavery is often mentioned because it, the argument goes like this. The Bible condones slavery. The church has condoned slavery. And we know that slavery is reprehensible. And so just as the Bible and the church has been wrong on slavery, the Bible and the church is also wrong on homosexuality. The Bible never condones modern slavery because there's, we have to make a distinction that modern slavery is not the same thing as ancient slavery. So modern slavery is sin. It is wrong. It is reprehensible. Focused on one group of people where they had zero rights. It was not volitional. Totally against their will. Treated subhuman. That is reprehensible. Slave trade, all of that is, is irreprehensible. Now, the concept of ancient slavery certainly did include that, but the, the semantic range for slavery, the definition of slavery, had a much broader meaning. What was that? Slavery, for some, was voluntary. When you fell upon bad times in, ancient, uh, uh, upon bad times in the ancient world, 
there really wasn't much of a safety net except for slavery. So let's say I had three years of no crop, I'd lost everything. What would I do? I would sell myself into slavery. I would find a good Lord, maybe someone even that I knew well, and I knew that he treated people well, I would sell myself into slavery for him, be under his service, and guess what? I would get, I would get paid. He would have rights. And I could buy myself out of slavery after I saved up, saved up enough money. My, my, my relatives could even buy myself out of slavery. Is that the same slavery of modern slavery? No, not, not exactly the same thing. Yes, there were bad forms of slavery back then too. But what, what we're getting at here are things like slave trade. And guess what? The Bible actually condemns that. Gives the death penalty for slave trade. Exodus 21, 16. Where you, if you were even caught with a man that you stole and you sold him, you would be put, you should be put to death. Unfortunately, many translations, starting in English translations, you know, 600 years ago, you know, uh, I'm sorry, 400 years ago, translated this incorrectly. Uh, not inc- I mean, they, they, they just said kidnap. Kidnap is not the right, it's just basically if you man stole, stole a man, stole a person, man meaning a person. Doesn't matter your age. Put to death. Even in 1 Timothy 1, uh, Paul lists a bunch of sins, and one of those sins is man stealing, slave trade, sin. Let's move to the New Testament. How many of you guys have heard this before? Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. So I'm not going to make a big deal of it. I even know of a pastor who, who preaches that. Or doesn't preach on it because, you know, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. I don't know if you guys ever... Any of you guys were ever involved in kind of debating and stuff, but you learn a lot of kind of logical fallacies. One of the first logical fallacies that we should learn is debating from silence. You don't do that. You never make an argument from silence alone. I mean, it could be part of your argument if you have other things to explain why an author or a writer or a person was silent on something or a book was silent on something. Because if you just use an argument silent, guess what else you can argue? You could argue that bestiality isn't a sin. Jesus never said anything about bestiality, did he? Jesus never said anything about incest. But, I, but actually silence can and does have a reason. Because we can explain why Jesus was silent about bestiality. Why? Why did Jesus never teach on bestiality? Because in Israel in the first century, not one Jew ever considered whether bestiality was sin or not. Hmm, I don't know. Never question. Incest was never a question about being an immoral issue. So that's why Jesus didn't have to reiterate himself. Well, but what about homosexuality? When you read every single rabbinic literature from centuries before Christ till all the way up to modern times, every rabbinic literature, it's unanimous condemning of same-sex relationships. Unanimous. And especially during the first century, it was unanimous. No one questioned the immorality of incest or bestiality or any, any sexual relationship outside marriage. So Jesus didn't need to. And even, let's just say he didn't think he was sin. Jesus was bold. And he would have no problem correcting people. Didn't he correct people on Sabbath? He did that. And yes, Jesus never said anything, about, anything specifically about homosexuality, but he said a lot about sexuality. 
As a matter of fact, he even said and reaffirmed biblical sexuality is between a, hus- a, a, ma- a male and female. The creator made them male and female. He said that in Mark 10 and a- actually Matthew chapter 19 as well. Created them male and the female and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus even raised the bar on sexual purity where he said, even if a man looks lustfully after a woman, he has committed adultery. Because there were some people in the first century that said, yes, adultery is a sin, but just the act is sin. And they're trying to justify all the things before it. And Jesus said, you know what? You're all wrong. I'm not trying to find where exactly it's wrong. He says, it, it's wrong even right here. That was a radical statement. No one else said that. He was no sexual liberationist by any means. By any means. He was saying radical things even for the Jews who were uh, viewed to be legalists. But, but, I mean, so Jesus was, was a lot about a lot liberation about a lot of things, freedom and grace about a lot of things, but when it comes to sexuality, any type of sexuality, he was even tightening the reins. Now let's move on to the Pauline epistles, and I'm, I know I'm going way, way over, sorry about that, uh, but let's just go to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 is a passage that's, that, I'm just going to read it to you because some of you guys may be familiar with it if I read it to you. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. As a matter of fact, this is the only passage in the whole Bible that mentions women and women sexual relationships. Only passage, Romans 1. Goes on to say, in the same way men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. So if you notice, you see natural, unnatural, natural, unnatural. So the question, I mean, for most conservative interpreters, we will say natural means uh, man and woman, husband and wife, unnatural means homosexuality. Revisionists, they don't understand it that way. What they say is, no, natural and unnatural means not, you know, homosexuality, but unnatural means going against one's own personal, individual orientation. So, I know, sounds bizarre, but I'm telling you, this is the predominant uh, understanding among revisionists and even liberal uh, scholars. So, um, the, so, the argument goes something like this. Um, what Paul is condemning here is when a person goes against their natural orientation and, uh, and, and has, so for example, a heterosexual man, what's natural for him is heterosexual relationships. But if he has a homosexual relationships, that is unnatural to him and that is what is being condemned here. And so how that came about is when you read Jewish philosophers around the first century and maybe around the first few centuries, you will find that they're, they're, they're living in a very hedonistic world, right? The Greco-Roman world were crazy. I mean, they're very hedonistic, they're very sexual, they're very erotic, and they were very um, promiscuous. And so often what the men would do, they would have all these, they would have sex with lots and lots and lots of women, and then after a while you have sex with so many women that you're like, well, I might as well have sex with anything else. You know, I would have sex with a man, I'll have sex with, you know, uh, with uh, animal. And, all, and so they see all those things. So these Jewish philosophers, they would be critiquing their culture and saying, you know, you see these, these men, they were having excessive lust. They're really heterosexual, but they're giving themselves all over to excessive lust that they begin to have sex with anything and do, begin doing unnatural things. So that's kind of how, how, you know, it's believed. But is that what Paul is talking about here? Well, we need to read things in context. And what we find is so interesting, Romans 1, there is a lot of textual echoes back to Genesis 1. Remember I said a biblical writer does not always quote an entire passage to refer back to it? Sometimes he will just refer words, maybe two words, maybe three words. And what Paul has done here, he has actually quoted 
almost 10 words that are almost identical to Genesis and the Greek translation of Genesis. Words like creation, words like image, words like likeness, words like bird, reptiles, animals. So all these words, even words like male and female. So what is the purpose of that? Paul is not just, just saying what's you know, just natural according to nature, but what Paul means here is nature, natural and unnatural, is according to God's creation. According to God's creation. That is what Paul is talking about here. And so Paul even uses the word male and female to refer back to, because even Jesus himself used the male and female analogy. The creator made them male and female. Where did Jesus get that from? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And this nature and unnatural analogy is not an analogy that is new to people in the first century. It was used by uh, Greek philosophers like Plato. It was used by Jewish uh, writers such as Philo and Josephus. So it was not just something totally foreign to them. And not one of them used it in the sense of a heterosexual man having homosexual sex. Not one. Uh, now let's move on to the last uh, pass, group of passages, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. Now this is a list of sins, and we can kind of go into different words there, but we're going to just focus on one word, and it's actually a, a compound word. Compound word means you take two words and you put it together. That's very common in Greek, in German, etc. Um, and the question is, the issue is, this one compound word does not occur anywhere, anywhere else before the New Testament was written. So many scholars believe that Paul created this word. He took two words and just kind of smashed it together and, and kind of used that word. So now, of course, since it didn't occur before the New Testament, we don't really know what it means. I mean, we could look after word what it meant, but the problem is just like today. I mean, we find a word today, 100 years before, it had a different meaning, right? So, it's, so you, don't, you don't want to rely heavily upon, you know, 200... 300 years later, you need to look things in context in that year and the right context in the Jewish context in Israel. So, uh, this word for revisionists, they say this doesn't refer to homosexuality, it's the Greek word arsenikoita. They believe it's referring to pedophilia, maybe sexual exploitation, because as they looked at lists that happened in the third century, in the fourth century, they say that's what is being used there, and that's kind of and that's not really good exegesis because you want to look at the first century, how it's being used. Um, so where did this word come from? I mean, if you were writing a letter, would you write in a cryptic way so that people understanding would not, not really, they have to guess at what you're meaning? <coughs> no. You would use words that your readers would understand. <coughs> you would write, you know, use... Even if you were creating a word, it would have to be something that people would relate to. So what was Paul getting at? <clears throat> well, the, one of the main books that first century Christians and first century uh, Jews read was the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. <clears throat> and in the Septuagint, we find these two words. And just guess where we find these two words. Leviticus 20, 13. Break those two words down. Arsane means male. Koite means bed or lie down. Remember? A man shall not lie or bed with a male. 
it is an abomination. So let's go back at the very, very beginning. Remember I said, what does the Old Testament passage mean? And does it apply to us? Well, we kind of answered what passages don't apply to us if the New Testament says it's been fulfilled in Christ, like the food laws. But how do we know that, you know, that, that, that def- for sure that there's a passage that does apply to us today if the New Testament reaffirms it? And we find that here. Not only did Paul do it once, he does it twice by using these two very specific words that we find in Leviticus 20.13. And if Paul wanted to condemn the issue of pedophilia, there's a Greek word for that that Paul didn't use. Paul would not have to create a word if he wanted to use talk about pedophilia. There's actually several Greek words that he could have used to talk about the issue of pedophilia. And I love that we finish with this one verse because this one verse says this. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, in the spirit of our God. Now, I know that this is a lot of information. And I know that maybe you won't remember everything. But I hope that the one thing that you will remember is this. This is the good news. And it's the good news that brings hope and new life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, help us to redeem the time. I know the time is going by so fast, but Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here, to worship together, to study your word together, and to just love you more. God, we praise you. We don't praise you enough, but help us to, with our own lives, give you glory. And we ask this in the matchless, mighty name of Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. All right, let's, uh, you guys have done a great job. And let's give him a round of applause. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. So we'd like to step into our next session. Can we take a 10-minute break here? Is that good? Can you do it in 10 minutes? Flip it around. Uh, There's some restrooms over this direction. Uh, There's some women's bathrooms if you go down the hallway this direction. There's a men's room if you go down the hallway that way. Drinking fountains. You can go to the book table. But please be back. We're going to start right away at 7.50, all right? So have a good break, and we'll see you in a little bit. Again, if you have questions, you can write them on these cards and turn them in in the back.
All right, if you could come on back into your seats, that would be great. And we are ready to get rocking and rolling again here. So uh, Dr. Yuan was talking to some people out there. That's why we're a little late getting started. He told me when we talked on the phone this week, he's too nice a guy to stop conversations. So he said one of us needs to step in and say, stop, like, get him up here. So we just did that and he's gonna be back in. Um, I should say this, uh, all of the talks that you're hearing tonight will be online uh, on the Parkview website. So as you're taking, trying to keep up and taking notes, um, those will be posted. Um, also, the way I became acquainted with Dr. Yuan was uh, about a year ago, I um, began a dialogue and then a Bible study with some um, people who were from the LGBT lifestyle, and I actually needed some help and some resources, so I just went on YouTube, and that's how I was introduced to Christopher Yuan, and so if you do the same thing, you can find many talks that he's given in different places and, um, and, and learn a lot of excellent information, so... Uh, so again, everything is going to be online, and you can follow it there tonight. So we um, collected questions during that break. If you didn't know that or you still have a question, if you want to just slip that in the back right now, there's a basket on that back table. We'll make sure it gets into the stash, and we'll do our best, the best we can to get through them tonight. So let me turn it over. Please, again, a, a way to say thank you. Give a round of applause to Dr. Yuan. let's begin with prayer again. Father, we thank you for today and um, help us, Lord God, as we tackle this very relevant issue uh, with truth and grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are a few issues that find so much uh, controversy and are so relevant than this issue of sexual identity and, and how we engage the LGBT community. But to be honest, Christians, we haven't done a good job we've done a quite poor job and have an even worse reputation. Um, there, is a, there was a study that was done, and it was published in a book called Unchristian, written by David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons. And they looked at how young Americans view Christians. They did a study, and they, they surveyed young Americans. They asked them positive things, like if you think about the church, I think about hope, or I think about that it gives, you know, it, it, it has good morals but a lot of negative things. And by far, their perception of Christians were very negative from the bottom. Confusing, not accepting, boring, insensitive, out of touch, too political, old-fashioned, hypocritical, judgmental. And guess what is at the very, very top? Anti-homosexual. 91% of those not raised within the church believe that we are anti-homosexual. This book was published in 2007. I guarantee that percentage is even higher now. Well, what about our own youth? We teach them, love the sinner, hate the sin. According to the survey, eight out of 10 of our own youth and young adults believe that we are anti-homosexual. And note that it doesn't say anti-homosexuality, more the issue, kind of generally. Rather, it says anti-homosexual, Christians, we are perceived to be against gay people. And that is wrong. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not against people. It's for people turning from their sins and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so should we. But unfortunately, people's perception is their reality. 
So what can we do to have a more Christian or more redemptive response? And there's many ways that I could approach this issue. I could approach this issue kind of looking at the culture war and, and kind of looking at what's going on in public policy, finding, you know, following what's going on in media. Or I could approach this issue looking at maybe this as a sociological issue or more of a psychological, developmental issue. But I want us this evening to use as our foundation for a true Christian response to homosexuality is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news. The gospel is what should guide us in almost everything that we do. So I think there's four things that can help us to have a more Christian redemptive response, not just to this issue, but to the LGBT community. And four things that I think will be a bit of a critique on us. One of the first things is we need to make sure that we have the right attitude. Are we broken about our own sin? Because we have a reputation of being busy about picking at other people's sins and almost ignoring or even trivializing our own sin. When I lived as a gay man, I felt Christians were telling me that gays and lesbians somehow deserved a hotter place in hell. That gays and lesbians, you know, that, that homosexuality, you know, that, that Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for gays and lesbians. But we know that that's not the truth. Same-sex sexual behavior is sin, but it is certainly not the worst sin. I don't believe that there are worse sins. I believe that God does view sins differently than others. I mean, he even talks about sexual sin is different. But he's talking about sexual sins. He's not talking about specifically homosexuality. But he's saying that it's different, not worse. I think it, ha it can have different earthly consequence. That's why it's a sin against the body. But it's still, it's still bad. I mean... You know the consequence of sin? Whatever sin it might be, great or small in our eyes, eternal separation from God. And you can't be more eternally separated from God than eternally separated from God. So sin is sin is sin. And we really have to understand that. Because when we begin like putting tears and, and saying this one is worse than the other, you know what we are doing? We're doing the very thing that the Pharisees did. And Jesus, he ripped them to shreds for that. They thought that their sins were not that much better. I mean, just read the whole book. I mean, all the Gospels. You know, the hardest sin that he was against was their pride, was their hypocrisy. And yet he would be sitting and eating with some of the worst sinners. So we need to be very careful. I mean, I know actually some very, you know, uh, conservative, solid Christians who somehow view this to be a, a worse sin. Maybe not the worst sin because I, I think they know. I mean, that's, no one can really hold that position that it's the worst sin. I mean, there is one worst sin that's grieving the Holy Spirit, not homosexuality. So we need to be careful. And, and, and I know that for many people, Strong conservative Christians, when they think about homosexuality, they think it's really foreign. It's, you know, it's weird. It's, it's you know, what they do, you know, you know, in New York or San Francisco or whatever. That's just gross. Those people, they're, you know, unnatural. You know, they get that from Romans, right? But as if they justify that, they're natural. Like, like their sins are okay. There's no natural sins and unnatural sins. They're sin. 
It's all sin. Well, it's an abomination, they'll say. Well, guess what? The Bible calls lying and cheating and coveting an abomination. So when was the last time you saw your friend that was a little bit prideful and say, you are abomination? Maybe we should. Maybe that would make us a little bit more serious about these sins that actually we saw Jesus much more serious about. But I think that that feeling that sometimes people might have when they think about this sin, you know, that's disgusting people will say, to the point where they even look down upon people who are gay, or look down upon even a Christian who might struggle with same-sex attractions. That's disgusting. I think that that should really be a good reminder for them, that it is just a fraction of what God feels when he looks at their own sin, and maybe even more, because it's so much easier to be disgusted about someone else's sin than to be disgusted about our own sin. We should be disgusted about our own sin, but we're not. We like our sin. We go to our sin when we feel bad. It feels good for the moment. But we look at else's, someone else's sin and we judge them for that. Let us judge ourselves first. Because I want to lead people to Jesus. You know, that's never done through a holier-than-thou attitude. I mean, have you ever met anyone who came to Christ through someone else who had a holier-than-thou attitude? Oh, I came to Jesus. This old lady, she was so pompous. <laughs> never, ever. You know, it's humility, gentleness. That is what draws people, not pride. So first, be convicted about our own sin, recognizing that our sin is just as odious, is just as bad in God's eyes than someone else's sin. Second, we need to be consistent. Jesus was so patient and compassionate toward the sinners, tax collectors, the prostitute, the adulteress. But he was hardest on the tax, I mean the Pharisees, because they were hypocrites. And let's be honest, we just naturally, I mean it's, you know, talk about natural and unnatural, we're just naturally sinners. We're naturally hypocrites. And we need, to, I think we need to recognize that because when we do, we can then keep it in check. And make sure we need to always go back to the word of God. How might I be living in, you know, not that's inconsistent to God's word, inconsistent to the gospel. And when it comes to homosexuality, I think we as a body of Christ has been, have been inconsistent in three ways. First of all, regarding relationships. What's your relationship status? Are you married or are you single? And, and you know, we, the, um, uh, you know, a lot of times people... Uh, generally speaking, Christians and non-Christians, we put more emphasis upon marriage than singleness. We treat, you know, marriage as something really special and, and we view singleness as not so special. And you might think, okay, I see that, but what does this have to do with homosexuality? A lot. Because if our message to the gay community is you need to walk away from same-sex relationships. If our message to you know, our same-sex attracted Christian friends is don't act upon those feelings. What, what does that mean practically? What does that mean reality? Be single for a period in your life, if not the rest of your life. And if so, do we have a healthy place for singles to thrive in Christian community? We don't. Oftentimes, Christ, Christ singles feel like second-class citizens. It, my, 
many of my gay friends tell me, what you're saying is your God wants me to be lonely for the rest of my life. So what they're doing is they're equating singleness with loneliness. But it's not equated to loneliness. I know some people who are married and they're still miserably lonely. So it's not marriage, that's a, that's a cure to loneliness. You know, I'll tell you the cure to loneliness. It's a relationship with a living God that's a cure to loneliness, not another person. Don't put all your hopes in another person, even if it's your spouse. Put all your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your spouse, your best friend, should not be your Messiah. That's not your friend or your spouse's job. That is Jesus who is the only Messiah. But unfortunately, we do elevate marriage sometimes to be like, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's happiness. You achieve that, you'll be so happy. <coughs> you know, it's like the pie in the sky. And, and we almost idolize marriage. We treat it like, you know, it's, it's the, you know, the goal in life. <coughs> I teach at, um, at Moody Bridal Institute, you know, and... <coughs> And they're serious. I mean, I went to secular school before I went to Moody, and I was like, I mean, these people are serious, you know, having their, you know, first date, they're already talking about how many children they want to have, and you know what, you know what, you know, how many, what's the color of their drapery and stuff. I mean, it's like, seriously, we have almost idolized marriage, and that's wrong. You know, when the Supreme Court on June 26th made that monumental decision to, to legalize same-sex marriage in all 50 states... Justice Kennedy, who was kind of the swing vote, um, he wrote the majority opinion. And he had this to say at the very end, the last paragraph. He wrote, marriage is the highest ideal of love. Let me say that again. Marriage is the highest ideal of love. I disagree. Marriage is not the highest ideal of love. It's good. It is very good, but it is not the highest ideal of love. God is. There's no one else, no one else that claims, you know, in the Bible, God is love. Period. God is the personification. He is love. So as Christians, we need to fight that and clarify to the world, yes, marriage is good, but it's not the best. Let me tell you about the best, and that is God himself. And so actually, um, one of my responses, uh, the response that I wrote, you see it out the, outside on the table, I, you know, I called it something greater than marriage. If you remember, like, you know, before the Supreme Court made their decision, there's a lot of people that changed their um, Facebook page to the um, red sign and the, and the pink equal sign. Well, I wrote this, and, you know, I titled, titled it Something Greater Than Marriage, and I, instead of the red equal sign, I have the red greater than sign. Because there is something greater than marriage. And that's God. And as Christians, we have to help people just know that there is a huge misunderstanding. We have elevated, not just the church, but even non-Christians have elevated marriage to be much more than what it ought to be. And I do believe that we must continue to lift up the beauty and gift of marriage. Thank you. But I think we have done that at the expense of singleness. 
So singleness is a consolation prize at best. I'm so sorry you're single. You know, I mean, oftentimes singles in, in, in Christian community feel like projects. You know, I mean, you know, they're always being introduced to their friend's friend's friend. I, I have many of my single friends that are like, you know what? I'm sick and tired of meeting new strangers. <laughs> Seriously. It's like, I, I don't know if I can meet another stranger. You know, I, you know, I don't want to go out to dinner with another stranger. I just want to hang out with my friends that I know. What a, what a concept. You know, it doesn't matter if they're married. I mean, they're my friends still. And, and you know, and, and we do that. And I know me, people mean well, but, but it gives the impression that we want to fix them of the problem of singleness. Think about it. That's why we call it, we want to fix you up with someone. Because they need to be fixed. <laughs> We have just bought into this whole lie that singleness is a curse. I have a friend, she was a missionary in China for five years. Went there single, came back single. And she saw several of her friends that she hadn't seen in a long time. And you know, they all asked her similar questions. Are you dating anyone? Do you, are you dating anyone? Do you, do you have anyone special in your life? She's like, no, I don't. Do you know what some of her friends said to her? Can I pray for you? It was as if she had cancer. Singleness, by the way, is not cancer. It's not a curse. But we treat it like that, don't we? We treat it like that unbearable burden because it has challenges. And yes, it does. But you know, from what I hear, marriage also has some challenges. <laughs> then why is it that we only focus upon the enormous blessings of marriage and the enormous challenges of singleness? Do you see how that is inconsistent? It's inconsistent, so we have, need to see what the Word of God says. You know, Paul spends an entire chapter in 1 Corinthians 7 talking about not only marriage, but also singleness. And in this chapter, guess what Paul says? He says that marriage, I mean, singleness is good. It's good. It's not bad. It's good. And we read that in contrast to, and it's, I think even the wording is almost echoing and giving clarification to Genesis, where it is good for man not to be alone. Because how do we interpret that? We interpret that as, oh, then he has, he has to get married. He has to be, uh, singleness is bad. But Paul is clarifying, no, that singleness is good. So is that correcting that? Is that, that that's wrong? No, it's just, it's just saying that don't be alone. Be in community. Be in the church. What a concept. You know, so, so it's, singleness is not only good, but you know what Paul goes on to say? He calls it a gift. But let me help you out a little bit here for those of you that are not single and are married and you have many single friends. Don't keep reminding them that singleness is a gift. Because most singles hate that verse. I don't care what Paul says. I don't care what, that he says that it's a gift. What's the return policy on that gift? You still got that receipt? You know, give it back. I don't want it. It's like a bad Christmas present. And, and you, know, you know, many of us, we can all agree singleness, or we can all agree marriage is a gift. But when it comes to singleness, most cannot wholeheartedly agree that singleness is a gift. And instead, you know what we say? We say singleness, whew, that's a calling, seriously. You know, not anyone can be single. You have to be either Superman or Wonder Woman to be single, which I don't know if you've noticed, but most superheroes are single. So what does that communicate? You have to have superhuman powers just to be single. 
And the majority of my Christian friends are married, and they're happily married. And you know they tell me a secret about, about singleness, about marriage. And they say that marriage takes work. It takes giving of yourselves, loving unconditionally. Even Paul goes on to say that, husbands, your job is to lay your life down for your wife. Amen, ladies? Amen? So I don't know what husband that doesn't struggle with that high calling. So do you know what I say, tongue-in-cheek? I say marriage. Whew, that's a calling, seriously. Singleness, that's a gift. I don't have to lay my life down for anyone yet. But I'm not trying to say one is better than the other because that would be inconsistent. I'm just simply reading the full counsel of God and saying, looking, seeing that godly marriage and godly singleness are two sides of the same coin. We should not emphasize one without emphasizing the other. And to be honest, as Christians, we have only be emphasizing one. And we, when we do that, we are not giving another option. We have to begin. I think this is the first step. I don't even know if we're ready to address this issue of homosexuality until we reclaim and have a robust theology of singleness first. Because if we preach this about homosexuality and have no place for people who might be coming out of a gay relationship, where are they going to go in the church? When the church is all about family and, and couples, which is good, keep doing that, but not at the expense of singleness. Are you following me? We have to do both. As a matter of fact, now, Christians, when you communicate to your friends about marriage, do not anymore do, that, do it without mentioning the goodness of singleness. Because I think that might be perpetuating the problem even more. Singleness is not bad. Singleness is not, according to Justice Kennedy, loneliness. Relegating people to a life of loneliness. How many of you guys are single? Okay. I mean, does that mean you're, you're just miserable and you just deserve pity? And Not to say that it's not easy. Not to say that you struggle with loneliness. But you know what? I know a lot of other people that are struggling with loneliness as well. And sometimes being in a house full of people and lonely is sometimes worse than being just really alone physically. So we have to really grasp a more fuller biblical view of singleness. And even we, un we misunderstand uh, what it means, uh, this, this whole thing about gift, because we think about it as like a present. Happy birthday, you're single. You know, most people, that's why they say, you know what, I don't have the gift of singleness because I don't want it. I never chose it. That's not something that I want. So therefore, I must not have it. They totally misunderstand. Paul is not thinking about a singleness as a birthday present. Because that word, a present, in Greek is the Greek word doron. That's not what Paul uses. He uses a different Hebrew Greek word, and it's the Greek word charisma, which more literally means spiritual gift. So singleness is not a present. Singleness is a spiritual gift. What's the significance of that? Well, are spiritual gifts ever chosen by an individual? Never. They're given by God. Okay? What if I don't want a spiritual gift? Does that mean I don't have it? Take the gift of prophecy. Gift of prophecy is a spiritual gift. Did all the prophets of old all want their gift? Ask Jonah, right? I mean, it's so, we see just because you don't want a gift, does that mean you don't have it? Then what's the purpose of a spiritual gift? 
Is it to make an individual happy? Is that the main purpose? Well, hopefully it will, but that's not its purpose. You know what the main purpose of a spiritual gift? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, it's for the edification of the body of Christ. Why is there the gift of prophecy? For the church. Why is there the gift of healing? For the church. Why is there the spiritual gift of singleness? For the church. And for those of you that are single, we need you. We can't even be the body of Christ with all our, without all our members being part of the body and exercising their spiritual gifts. And to be honest, for the rest of us, we need to repent that we have not helped our single sisters and brothers celebrate their gift of singleness. And instead, what have we done? We've practically squashed it. We need to repent and help our brothers and sisters celebrate and exercise their spiritual gift of singleness. We need to be consistent as well regarding sexuality. Because I often hear people say that heterosexuality is the goal. It is God's design. That somehow... Um, I, I've even heard that our goal is to help people achieve their heterosexual potential. What does that mean? I, no, I mean, really. I mean, that, that, that has been almost the paradigm for the past 10, 20, 30 years. You know, one thing that I, that I teach Moody, help my students, that we need to think biblically and critically. Look at the Bereans. They didn't just take, you know, just whatever Paul said, whatever the disciples said, they went back home, they opened up their Bibles, and they studied for themselves. We need to do the same thing. We need to think biblically and critically. Don't just accept what I say. Go back and, and, and read and study yourself. But, but for one thing regarding that statement, is, is our goal to pursue heterosexual potentiality? What does heterosexuality mean? Being attracted to the opposite sex, being sexually intimate with the opposite sex. That's a pretty broad definition. Within that broad definition, I could be a man and I slept with 50 women last month and that could still be considered heterosexuality. Or I could be a married man and I cheat on someone who's not my wife. That could be considered heterosexuality. Or I could be a single man and I am living with my girlfriend. I mean, we're committed, we're kind of in a monogamous relationship, but we're not married and I'm not sleeping with her. That could also be considered heterosexuality. Those three scenarios are sinful but still under the broad category of heterosexuality. So God would never use a category that would include sin. Certainly that broad category includes the one example of marriage, and that is something that God would bless. But guess what? Everything outside of that example of marriage is sinful. That's still under the broad category of heterosexuality. So I think as Christians, we should just throw out the whole heterosexual homosexual category. It's not, it's not 
helpful for Christian living at all. We don't find the word heterosexual in the Bible. We don't even find the concept of something that's lifted up as right. So if it's not heterosexuality, it's not homosexuality, then what is it? It's holy sexuality. And what is holy sexuality? When I read through the full counsel of God, you know, there are only two options for us to live out our sexuality. One, if you're married, complete faithfulness to your spouse of the opposite sex. Or if you're single, complete faithfulness through chastity and abstinence. Those are the only two options. And I don't have a term for that, so I had to create a term. And I call it holy sexuality. And what I like about that is this applies to everyone. Doesn't matter if you have heterosexual feelings or homosexual feelings, we all need to pursue holiness. I mean, if you notice, I don't like to call people heterosexual. Heterosexual doesn't really define a person. What does it define? Our feelings. The world tries to make this experiential reality and turn it into who you are. That's what Freud and, and, uh, and Foucault and other philosophers at the turn of the century, they succeeded into that to the point where now this has become an identity. Your feeling is now who you are. What? So, I mean, we have to separate this. And Christians, we have even bought into this. Heterosexuality is, is it's not heterosexuality, it's homosexuality, it's holiness. And we need to be also consistent regarding change. What does change look like? You know, is it gay to straight? Or even it, is it measured, you know, somehow some type of focus upon trying to change one's orientation, trying to change what, you know, the, the direction or focus or the, you know, just focusing so much upon the, the, the feelings part or the orientation part, the attractions part. Is that the main focus? Because if it is, then do we apply that principle to anything else? Say I have a friend who was a drunk, comes to Christ, stops drinking, but he admits he still has urges to drink, but he doesn't. Would we then tell him, you have not been changed? I hope not, because I think God's grace is more evident in his life because he says no to his flesh and says yes to God. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the ability to be holy in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not what I'm struggling with. You know, but it's, it's about that I just obey God. It's that I focus upon dying to self and allowing Christ to live in me so I can live a holy life, not on my own strength. You know, I've been reading through um, uh, the, the Puritans lately. And there's a book written by John Owen that's been kind of re-edited um, together. It's, it's actually three of his books. Uh, it's written by, or it's edited by Kelly Coppock and Justin Taylor. But the name of the book is Overcoming Sin and Temptation. And what I love about this book, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, but, oh, and, it's, and it's not, it's not going to be an easy book. I mean, you're going to have to like, you read a page and you got to like rest. I mean, it's hard, but it is so good. And I'll tell you why. Because it focuses upon the human condition. All of us are created in the image of God. But guess what? That image has been distorted by sin. We cannot talk about who we are without talking about the reality of original sin. When Adam and Eve um, uh, sinned, all of us have been impacted by that. You didn't choose that. That's just a reality. Original sin... And that, that kind of comes out with actual sin, the action of sin. But guess what isn't always addressed? Is indwelling sin. That's our flesh. It's our sin nature. 
coming to Jesus doesn't mean that somehow, you know, that, that you have a frontal lobotomy. No. I mean, we still deal with our flesh, our sin nature. You have been forgiven. If you come to Lord Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven. But that doesn't mean that you'll no longer struggle with sin. That's the lie. That's a misunderstanding. And, and what I appreciate is that, you know, what John Owen talks about is this is a battle that you're going to have to do every day. Paul says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's not a one-time deal. That's a continuous thing. And so that's why any type of kind of focus that puts it away from the sin nature, this is where I get a lot of, you know, because, you know, there have been people in the past that have written and spoken and stuff like that. And a lot of times when you hear, and even people on the radio, a lot of times what, they, what, you, what you hear is they're talking about all these root causes. And I think it misses it. Because you know what? There's only one root cause. It's our sin nature. There might be influences, but you know, an influence is not the same as a root cause. And why am I making a big deal of it? Because if you make the wrong um, diagnosis, then your answer leads to the wrong answer. Just like if you're a doctor, you need to make that right di diagnosis so you can make the right treatment. If you make the wrong diagnosis, guess what? You will be led to the wrong treatment. And when you come up with a diagnosis that is focused more upon things of your past, like absentee father, dominant mother, and abuse. How many of you guys have heard that before, that that's the cause for homosexuality? No one? Okay, I mean, we hear that. I mean, that's kind of been the, the whole, and I'm not saying that that has an influence, but that not, is not the cause. You don't struggle with sin today because somehow your father or mother didn't spend enough time with you. As a matter of fact, that's more Freudian than anything else. That's not biblical. Why do you struggle with sin today? I'll tell you, because you're a sinner. Hate to break the news to you. <laughs> and so when you have that correct diagnosis, guess what? You come to the right conclusion. And you know what, that, you know what is the correct answer? Jesus. <laughs> Pure and simple, Jesus. The gospel. If you can fix your own sin problem, Jesus would not have to die on the, on the cross. So that's, that's the core issue. I mean, that's why I'm so passionate about this. It's because we have to get the right answer if you want to fight sin. And another thing, and I know that there's some parents in here. I know that, the, that often Christians have put more blame on you saying it's because you didn't spend enough, more, enough time with it. Like if you would have just gone to more soccer games, he wouldn't be gay. Mom, if you weren't just so much of a helicopter mom, then your daughter wouldn't be lesbian. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's not your fault. You could have been more, a more perfect parent. You know what? All of us, all parents could have been a more perfect parent. But you know, perfect parenting does not guarantee perfect children. It doesn't. Look at Adam and Eve. They had a perfect father and they still rebelled. If Adam and Eve rebelled, what makes you think you can have a perfect jo job, right? So just as parents, you know, uh, parents who might have ch kids that just are just really godly and doing great things, just as they can't take all the glory, guess what? Parents who have children who are walking away from God also can't take all the blame. So just know, don't allow the world and Satan to heap more guilt upon you. But focus upon this thing, 
that Jesus died for your sins and he is the answer. As simple as that is, it's not, as you know, to live it. Third, we need to be compassionate. And I think sometimes we have missed the mark because we have, we, even the way we talk about, you know, the gay community is more about us, them. Like about they're going to ruin the world or they're going to ruin, you know, our culture and stuff like that. They're not that smart. They're not that powerful. You know, and we talk about the gay agenda. When I was a gay man, I never even heard of that phrase. I didn't have a gay agenda. My gay agenda was just to be who I was. You see, that's, that's the thing. I had the wrong identity. And so it's, it's the, you know, there is no gay agenda for the gay community. The only agenda is the agenda of Satan who tries to deceive people and pull them away from the, from the purpose in our life, which is give glory to God. That is an agenda. So we need to be compassionate. Because I know people who, you know, have struggled with, with these issues for years. And a lot of them suffer with depression, even thoughts of suicide. For some, this is an issue between life and death. So this is serious. We have to be a more safe, redemptive space. You know, as a matter of fact, I think the church should be the most safe, the most safe place in the world. Are we? So how can we do that? First, expect this is present in the body of Christ. Not be surprised. It's in your small groups. It's in the pews that we sit in. We have brothers and sisters where this is a very personal issue for them. They're wrestling through these issues of sexual identity. And they're no different from the rest of us. We have beloved friends where they have children who are gay and maybe they're deathly afraid to tell us. Can you imagine keeping something secret for so long? It's not easy. We have to be a place where people feel safe to open up about whatever issue. And I mean whatever issue. The best place to be working through issues of sexual identity is in the church. And we're so quick to farm people out, you know, to, to other, you know, even ministries and good ministries and farm people out to a counselor, even good counselors. And then we leave them there. See ya. And we're pushing them away from the very body where they could really get help. It's the church that is the answer. So question we do expect this is present here, not be surprised. I mean, I, sometimes I hear people like, wow, I don't know why. My best friend just told me he struggled with same-sex attractions, and I don't know why. He came from a good home. He had Christian parents. He was even homeschooled. And I would say, wait a second, what you're really saying is if someone comes from a good home, Christian parents, that they're somehow exempt from struggling with sin? Really? Okay, newsflash. Someone here, I sense, is struggling with sin. I know, I know, I don't, you know, don't raise your hand, right? I mean, all of us struggle with sin, right? None of us is exempt from that. I mean, what is the body of Christ? Are we a group of people who have it all together? Don't, you know, you know, we hold hands once a week and we sing Kumbaya? Or are we a group of people who are broken and needy and we know we desperately need Jesus? I'll just be honest with you. I am broken and I desperately need Jesus. Anyone else out there that relates to that at all? So let us all hand in hand walk together to him. Because he is the one 
who will guide us and give us life. Second, know your position. This is key. I mean, I believe that we need to be clear about what, our, what is our position. But you know what our position often boils down to? It's this. It's a sin, don't do it. To be honest, it doesn't really help someone in their time of need. If I want, you know, to be able, if I say what my position is, I want them to walk away with this, which is my desire is to lead people into a deeper relationship with Jesus. That's the most important thing. For what reason? So that they're willing to surrender everything. It has to come back to that. If you have prodigals in your life, their main issue is not their periphery, you know, whatever it is that they're doing, what their rebellious behavior. You know, my main problem was not my homosexuality. My main problem was my unbelief. That's the main issue. Has to come back to that. And yet we often focus upon these peripheral things. Third, maybe you have a friend now, you know, who you're thinking in the back of your mind, you want to like let them know that you're there for them, that you've always wondered whether they're struggling with this issue, so how do you ask them? Don't. Imagine if someone asked you out of the blue, are you gay? Awkward. But what you can do is give assurance of your friendship. Tell them, I thank God for you, and I just want you to know anything you say or do won't change our friendship. That creates a safe space, and we should be doing that with every one of our friends. Fourth, let us be, have zero tolerance on the gay jokes and the bullying. The gay jokes and the bullying. It should be the church that's holding the banner and fighting against this issue of bullying. And gay jokes. Unfortunately, many Christians were guilty of that. And we make these jokes. And they might be funny for the moment, but you never know when your best friend has a son who's gay that just came out to them and they know that, well, I'm not going to share that. Let's be more creative. Can, can we help our youth to like expand their vocabulary a little bit? You know, instead of that's so gay, how about that's so Baptist or that's so Presbyterian or, you know, whatever. I'm sure you can think of something very creative. Fourth, we need to be complete. And this is being complete about how we build relationships and what we communicate to our friends and loved ones. You know, because we focus upon God's truth. Why? Because it's the truth that sets us free. And what is God's truth? What is God's truth when it comes to this issue of sexuality and homosexuality? Oh, that's easy. People say, you know, same-sex relationships is sin. Okay. But you know what most people say or do? They put a period after that end of that sentence and they say nothing more. And you know that's equivalent to giving someone a one spiritual law tract. Have you heard of the four spiritual laws? This is one spiritual law that goes something like this. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Sorry. In case you didn't know, that's not good news. There's nothing good about that. That's bad news. That's not the full gospel. That's a partial gospel. That's not the complete truth. That's an incomplete truth. And telling someone an incomplete truth is just as harmful as telling someone a lie. So what is the complete truth? Paul, as we talked about in 1 Corinthians 6, 6, says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's not good news. Then he lists 10 sins. And in this list of 10 sins are, are two words that focus upon homosexual practice. Sometimes people look at that list and they say, look, gays and lesbians won't inherit the kingdom of God. They conveniently forget about the eight other sins. Because if we look at all 10 sins, none of us should inherit the kingdom of God. That's bad news. 
But I'm so glad Paul didn't stop there because he goes on to say this in verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is not good news. That's amazing news. That's news that we can declare from the rooftop to the gay community, to the straight community, to any community that needs to know about Jesus Christ. So our message must be redemptive. We need to focus upon the good news because people in the gay community, the main issue is not their sexuality. Their main issue is to know Jesus and fully surrender to him. So I'm going to give you some practical things here at the very, very end. And my remote is about to die, so I don't know if maybe someone can grab my mom or dad to go back to my computer there to kind of forward it. That would be fantastic. Um, but so I'm going to break it down to four groups. First, Christians with same-sex attractions who, who hold to biblical sexuality and, and, and know that, uh, that it's sin, but they struggle with same-sex attractions. How do we walk with them? The other one are people in the gay community or even people who say they're gay Christian and, and say it's okay to pursue gay relationships. Like, that would be more outreach and evangelism, right? Evangelism is different than discipleship. So let's focus upon the first group, discipleship. Christians who struggle with same-sex attractions. Do you know what to say? Let's just say after this weekend, someone actually confides with you. It's a Christian brother or sister. And they, sh- and they share about their, their, their wrestling with this issue of sexual identity. Do you know what to say or do? First, thank them. Do you know how hard it is to open up to another believer about this issue of sexuality? It could be one of the hardest things. Second, tell them that they're not alone. It could be one of the scariest things. I mean, and, and yet they think sometimes that they have to go through life all alone. That's scary. That's sad. But if you simply tell them, you know, I want to walk with you to Jesus those words can be life for someone. You don't have to know all there is to know. You know, we get this misunderstanding that somehow you have to be an expert on this to help someone. No. If you are a follower of Jesus and you know what it's like to struggle with your flesh and say no to your flesh and say yes to God, and if you love God's word, you can walk with someone. What helps people most is not to give them answers. What helps people most is to just walk with them. Do life with someone. That is more helpful than anything else. And you can do that. So tell them that, they're, they, that they don't have to be alone. Third, help remind them that their identity needs to be in Christ. And you know, it's, that was so important for me that I needed to know that this, my, my identity should not be in what I feel. My identity should not be in what I, how I'm attracted my identity has to be in Jesus Christ. And what does that all mean? What your identity is, is what you put the most focus on. What you concentrate most of your time thinking about, that is what your identity is. And we, by far, should focus all our time and energy upon our relationship with Christ. Don't put your identity in your sexuality. I mean, Christians, again, I think we should just throw out the whole gay, straight, even heterosexual, homosexual. It's not helpful. I mean, yes, when we interact with those in the, in the, you know, in the world, what, you know, you're going to have to use some words that you can relate them to. But as Christians, you know, I'm gay, I'm straight. Who cares? Are you following Jesus? That's what I want to know. And that's what I want to help others do. Follow Jesus. Second, 
or third or fourth, whatever I'm on. Uh, fourth, be realistic. Don't give these false promises that it's so easy, come to Jesus and you'll, be, you know, you'll just have no problem at all. No, following Jesus is not easy. You know when Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must, not an option, must, deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. What do we want to do? We want to jump over the first two things. We don't want to deny ourselves. We don't want to pick up our cross. And we just want to follow Jesus. Like it's so easy. Like it's just a piece of cake. Like he's my buddy. He's my pal. Following Jesus should cost us everything. If it hasn't, maybe you're following the wrong Jesus. It's about complete denial of self. Because when you deny self, that's when Jesus can really live in you. Following Jesus should cost us everything. And if it hasn't, maybe you're following the wrong Jesus. Because when you give up everything, and he allows you to keep some things, you realize those things that he allows us to keep are no longer ours. They're all his. Fifth. Don't focus so much on the external things. You know, and this is mannerisms. Whether people are acting, you know, feminine and they're man, or whether they're acting too masculine as they're women, or whether, like, you know, sometimes people get so caught up in, like, you know, well, she wears pants all the time. Okay. Where's her heart? You know? You know, or we try to, like, you know, teach guys how to, like, walk right, or, you know, throw a football, or change a flat tire, and it's like, that can be helpful, but why are you not spending more time with him falling in love with Jesus? Because you know what the gospel is about? It's about changing the heart. And I want to see change from the inside out, not from the outside in. The gospel is about heart change. Sixth, we need to encourage God-honoring same-sex friendships. This was key to me. Next to my relationship with God, next to that was my relationship with others. I needed to see how men loved one another. Not in sexual ways, but in healthy, healthy, non-sexual, non-romantic ways that are God-honoring. As a matter of fact, God put in all of us a desire for intimacy. Not sexual intimacy, but intimacy with people of the same sex. So really, I think homosexuality, it's a legitimate need only fulfilled in an illegitimate way. I think many sins is a legitimate need fulfilled in an illegitimate way. So let us help each other fulfill these things in legitimate ways. So that's kind of walking with Christians who struggle with same-sex attractions. But how about people in the gay community? LGBT, now T, I didn't focus so much upon that because that's a whole other hour. But I think many of these things that I'm going to give do focus upon how to share Christ with those in the gay community. And, and even some people who, who, who say, well, no, I'm, I'm gay and Christian and God's going to bless my same-sex uh, friendship. And, and honestly, I think that's a false gospel. So that's, that still is sharing them the true gospel. So this is what I think, what we first, before I tell you what should you, should you do, this is what you should not do. Do not compare this with an addiction, pedophilia, murder. That's not a good way to win people to Christ. Do not use these two words, lifestyle and choice. Don't use these two words, lifestyle and choice, because I never used those words when I lived as a gay man. This wasn't what I did. This was who I was. See, it comes back down to the identity part. Christians, we sometimes keep focusing upon the behavior. 
and the people in the gay community, they're like, why do you keep focusing on the behavior? This is who I am. So we're talking like this. I think as Christians, we can start talking about identity. Who are you? Who are you apart from your sexuality? I mean, that's core things about getting to know a person. So I think that, that that's a less controversial, volatile way to interact with our loved ones and friends in the gay community. Don't you say the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. When someone tells you, I love you, but I hate your sin, they don't feel loved. So just don't say that phrase, do it. Fourth, don't feel the need that you have to debate with people all the time. There's a, there's a time and place to speak truth, but I think that's once God really softens their heart. So if someone asks you, do you think this is sin? I think it's okay to deflect. Jesus didn't answer every question. He used his sermon to know when to speak yes or no, and when to speak a full question or give a, a full response. So if someone asks, do you think this is sin? I would say, you know, I value, for, I value our friendship more than debating all the time. Can we celebrate our similarities and tolerate our differences? Because it comes down to relationship. But I don't believe that you should never answer a yes or no question because Jesus did answer questions. He just knew that when he was with the crowd and they just wanted to see a show, he spoke to them in parables. When he was with his disciples, he gave a fuller answer. They weren't contradicting each other. Just one wasn't, this one, they, their heart wasn't open. So he didn't give a full answer to them. So that, you know, I think if someone comes to you and says, what does the Bible say? That's much different than what does the Bible say? Do you think this is sin? See the difference? That is when you have this open door to speak truth into their life. Uh, so then that's what you should not do. So uh, my... Uh, thing just died dad um, so this is what you should do first you need to pray we need to pray and fast I think we have lost the spiritual disciplines of praying and fasting yes fasting often mean, means you know not eating or whatever or not eating solid foods you can stay on a liquid diet or that's what my mother did for 39 days you know, or you could fast from, you know, what a television, television, or fast from, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, that's still fasting. I think we've really lost that. And, and we need to pray and fast because it's impossible for people to change. But I know a God who does the impossible, amen? So we need to pray and fast. You know, do war. Where's your war room? Before there was ever even a war room. My mother had her war room. Actually, that book, the, no, the novelization of that book was dedicated but to my mom. And she will even tell you she's no great person. It's when you're so desperate that you lean into God more. You lean into God. Second, listen. Don't be quick to speak, but be quick to listen. That we, have, we're, that we all have problems with that, especially preachers, right? I mean, I love to preach. I love to speak. But if we want people to listen to us, we need to listen to them. Because people won't care what you know until they know that you care. And sometimes you do that just by listening. Third, be intentional. Do not be afraid. You know, it's okay to go across the street to your gay neighbor and invite them over for dinner. But I'm just going to forewarn you, when you do that, people are beginning asking questions. What are you doing eating with that sinner? Isn't that what the Pharisees said to Jesus? 
Oh wait, if I have my gay neighbor over for dinner, am I condoning his sin? Good question. Well, last time I checked, we usually have sinners over for dinner. Nothing new. <laughs> you're just eating dinner. You're not sinning with them, right? There's a big difference. If you're sinning with them, if you're sleeping with them, that would be a big difference. But you're just eating. And hopefully you're going to share Christ, the love of Christ with them. So be, don't be afraid. Kind, kindness often speaks louder than words. Fourth, be patient and persistent. Don't treat this like your pet project. It's going to take time. For me to turn around in eight years is a short time. I know people who've been praying for decades. Lastly, be transparent. Share what the gospel is doing in your life lately. Because the gospel and believing in God is not about just one moment in your life. The gospel is something that should impact you every day of your life. None of us, if you have made the Lord Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, if you are living out the gospel, we should not be the same as we were 10 years ago, 10 months ago, or even 10 weeks ago. Share that. If you opened up your Bible to your friend, they can begin arguing and debating with you. But you know what? They're less likely to debate with you about what God has done in your life personally. And share about that. Because, you know, I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out in my parents' lives. I would not have picked up that Bible from the trash can if I didn't see the Bible lived out in my father's life and my mother's life. Let me tell you, I did not leave pursuing a gay relationship because someone convinced me they were so bad. I did not leave pursuing a gay relationship because someone convinced me it was sin. I did not leave pursuing a gay relationship because somehow someone convinced me they were so unhealthy. I left it because I was shown something better. And his name is Jesus. Our job as followers of Christ is to show a dying world out there that no matter what they're clinging to, all the fool's gold in the world, whether it's a job, a career, whether it's a spouse, whether it's family, no matter what they're clinging to, not only is Jesus better than all of that, but Jesus is best. So let us be the church that lives our lives in a way that is so surrendered to Christ that it is unmistakable, unmistakable that not only is Jesus better, but Jesus is best. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. The most beautiful name. Thank you that it was he who died for me. If it was anyone else, it would have done no good. But it was God himself who entered our world, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, died on the cross 
for me, for you, for the world, so that we would be forgiven. And so that when we believe in his resurrection, we also will live. Thank you, oh God. Help us to be women and men of your word. Help us to be women and men of prayer. Help us to be women and men of holiness. Help us to be women and men of the gospel. God, we can't do anything apart from you. Enable us, oh God, even today, to not only live the gospel, but share the gospel. Break our hearts for the gay community. Break our hearts for the world. We love you, and we ask this in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus, the Messiah. The people of God said, Amen. Can we do a few minutes of questions? Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, great. We haven't come from about five through. Okay, great. Okay. Amazing job. Thank you so much. You are Thanks, blessing God. us big time tonight. So, a couple things I thought of here. Um, if some things are stirring with you tonight, we're gonna, what we're going to do is take a few uh, questions that we took from you. We've basically clumped them into five general questions, and I think that would cover most of the ones we received from you. So uh, we're not going to be able to cover every one we got, but in general, they fit into five categories. So we'll have those read, and Dr. Yuan will answer those. Um, his, I asked his mom, give me an honest time. Like, what time do we need to get him out of here? Because he's preaching tomorrow morning at 8, so our goal is 9.30 to get him out, okay? Some of you have children that uh, there's some workers that would love for you to come get those children, okay? So um, we will do the best we can. We are going to tape all of this and put it online, so if you need to go pick up children, we have gone longer than we told you we would. Um, this has been excellent, though. We do not regret that, so, but um, if you need to go, then uh, and, and to have your children either go home or come back with you, that would really bless our workers that are back there, okay? So, so we'll take these five questions, and then we'll see if there's time for a few from the floor. We may do that as well. But we'll try to cut it off here, 9.15, 9.20, so we can get this man some rest. Is that, is that good? You guys on the same page with us? Okay, so uh, Scott and John had our questions. Come on up, guys, or wherever you want to read them. All right, so the first question, or, you know, there's three different kind of versions of this question is, how to respond to the idea that I was born gay or that they have, uh, that homosexuals have a different genetic makeup, or, um, and then the other question was, what are some of the, what would cause people to become homosexual, and they were, their example was, they were born that way. Yeah, so, so uh, that's, I have a whole other talk that's about an hour long, uh, but I'm going to distill it, basically, uh, there's been a lot of research. So a lot of times people say, is it, is it nature, is it nurture? And the answer is both are wrong. It's not nature or nurture. It's nature and nurture, most likely. There's a lot of research, and, and to date, even though all the research that has been done, nothing's been conclusive. We don't really know. And um, so all the research has been focused on what are the possible factors that play into the development of a sexual identity. And we really don't know yet. It could be partially genetic, and I said partially, 
because there's other factors that play into it. This is why when people say it is genetic, that's not a scientifically accurate statement. What they might be saying is it's, it, genetic has an influence. It, it could be a factor. But when you say something is genetic, that means that that's solely genetic. There's no other factors that play into that. We could say that about hair color. We could say that about eye color, but not sexuality. Um, so it, there, there is possible genetic uh, attribute, but definitely not fully. It could be hormonal, it could be developmental, there's a lot of other sociological factors that probably play into it, but we don't know yet. Now the issue when people say people are born gay, they confuse that all the research is actually not even focusing upon whether people are born gay. It's only focused upon what are the possible factors. Because the born gay question is not a what question, it's a when question. And this is what a lot of times people miss. Why is it a when question? Because the born gay question is stating that whatever factors there are, they all occur and influence a person before a person comes out of the womb. So the question is, when do these factors come into play? Before the womb or, or in the womb or out of the womb? So let's just say few years down the road, we figure out what all the factors are, which I don't think we will, but let's just say we find out there are 100 factors. If we show that all 100 factors influence a person before birth, then we could say a person is born gay. You following me? But if we say 80 are before birth and 20 are after birth, we can't say that people are born gay. See how one is the what question, the other one is the when question? We haven't even figured out the what question. We're not even anywhere close. So we cannot jump to the conclusion that it's the when question. So it's actually, it's the most unscientific statement and, and it's, there's nothing holding that up. We do have some evidence that there's partially genetic, but we can't say just because something's partially genetic that then people are born gay. But with that said, I know many of you people have, have friends that are very convinced that they are born gay. There's nothing you can really say to change their mind, but you know, there's something, one thing that I would tell them. I would say, I know you think you're born gay, and I can't change your mind. The science has not proven that so yet, but I can tell you one thing, that even though you think you were born gay, the Bible says you must be born again. The old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ. That's the good news. You must be born again. Doesn't matter whether you think you were born an alcoholic. You must be born again. Doesn't matter if you think you were born a liar or a cheater. You must be born again. That's the good news. You must be born again. As they become aware of this, my grandchild has a classmate with two moms. So the reality of needing to talk to our kids about um, sexual identity and gender identity is becoming more uh, sooner and sooner. That's just the, the reality of, of the world that we live in. And I don't think that we have to think it's horrible or really bad. It's just the reality we live in. I, you know, talking about sexuality is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, right? Unless you think sexuality is a bad thing. Sexuality is a good thing. You know, but when, with good things come things that are not good. So I think sexuality is good to talk about. Um, we just need to know when is the right time. With our culture, though, they're really pushing the envelope and trying to make it younger and younger and younger. And that's just uh, that's that's the world we live in. So, um, 
I think that there's two important things that our children must first understand before we really are able to talk about this issue of homosexuality. First, we need to understand that about the concept of sin. That we're all sinners, we all have a sin nature, you know, we're all impacted by original sin. And, and th these are probably bigger concepts, so you can kind of simplify it, but, but we need to talk more about sin as just, you know, those are the bad things, don't do those. We need to also understand that we're all sinners and we all have a sin nature. So that means all, we'll all be tempted. So they need to understand sin and they need to understand temptation. But the other thing that they need to understand is grace. God's grace. We're all sinners, but God still loves us. So though people might be living in sin, we need to extend grace. Why? not just for the sake of just loving. And that's why we need to be careful when people say, we just need to love someone, because what does that mean? We don't love people as a goal. We love people as a means to the goal, and that goal is Jesus. See what I mean? The goal is transformation through Jesus. Um, so the, um, you know, the, that's, that's the important thing that, that I would be able to make sure that our kids first understand the concept of sin and temptation and then grace, because once they understand that, you can talk about almost any issue. The next question is, how should one respond to an invitation to a same-sex wedding? Attend, not attend? Yeah, so um, I get asked this all the time, and people might get frustrated because I don't give an answer. I, I, I cannot tell you, you have to go or you should not go. Um, I, I think this is a, um, a conviction issue. Uh, you need to fast and pray and seek godly wisdom about this. If you are married and both of you are, are invited, I believe you both need to pray together, uh, seek godly wisdom, and I think um, that the, 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 the decision, the, the, the God's will, will be something where you both come to the right conclusion. I, I, I just feel that. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, these are things that husband and wife should, should be doing together um, and praying and fasting and deciding together. Um, but I got to tell you, that there's two things that, that come into uh, kind of tension here. One, does your loved one know what you believe? That you believe in the triune God, that you believe Jesus died for your sins, that you believe in the Bible as inerrant and fallible, and because of all these things, we believe in biblical sexuality. And do they know that you love them still? If you do not go, guess what? They really know what you believe, but they think you don't love them, no matter what you say. If you do go, it's really clear you love them, but they might be confused what you believe. So you two see how these two can be in tension with, with one another? So I would say, if you're praying and fasting and you believe God is telling you that you, that you can't go, this is against your convictions, um, I would not call them up to tell them I can't go. I would actually say, you know what, can I take you out to a nice dinner? And, uh, and, and, and be able to talk about it face to face. And even invite, maybe invite their partner out, because we want the partner to know Christ as well. Because um, this is a very important decision, and, and it can make, have, have um, and, and explain to them that you're really torn, because you, know, you have your convictions, but you really love them. Um, on the other side, uh, well, most, most you know, people say, well, if I go to that, I'm affirming the, the relationship, and I'm celebrating this, this union. And that is true. Most people who go to a wedding are all celebrating uh, this union of two people, but not everyone who goes to a wedding is celebrating. For example, sometimes 
in-laws. In-laws go to weddings, and oftentimes, the couple clearly knows where they stand, but they're still there, right? You know, that line, forever hold your peace, I'm so glad, like, we've taken that out, right? I mean, I don't know why they put that in, but, um, so, the, uh, but, but I, I think that simply going, though most, most of the time, uh, people are going to celebrate, but not everyone, and, and, it's, and it's because it, it's... The couple knows where they stand, but they're going because, you know, of your love for the couple. So I think, like personally, if someone invited me, if it was done in a church, even if it was was a a more liberal church, I would not be able to go because it would be done under the impression that it's under the authority of God and it's not. You know, if it was my son and and he's not following God and he wants to do it in a church, I'd be like, why do you want to do it in a church? Do, Do it in a, you know in a clerk's office or whatever, or in a city hall or whatever, and, you know, and that's just a piece of paper. That's between you and the state, and I don't have as much of an issue with that, even though I, I still don't think it is God's best. Um, so I, I would, or I know some people who would not go to the, the ceremony, but they would go to the reception. I mean, it's a free dinner, right? So why not? Um, to, you know, being, and, and you have to be intentional about you need to go according to your convictions. So if you do go to the reception and they're all doing toast to the, to the couple, I just would sit out. I, I wouldn't do that. I mean, I'm there and I'm, I'm there because I love them, but I, I just wouldn't be, that's, that's a clear, you know, kind of support. Or I know like even a daughter asked their father to give them away. That is, you see the difference between something that's clearly affirming something, but another one is where you're not, you're just there because, you know, you love that person. Uh, but again, you have to pray about this and come to your own conclusion. Um, if you do decide to go, uh, like I know some people that when they go through the line, instead of saying congratulations, you know, maybe more like, I love you. I'm so glad that I get to be in your life. Focus more upon your relationship with them and um, not celebrating the couple. I wouldn't give them one gift. Most of the times people give them one gift for the couple. I would get them to individual gifts, right? Get them something Christian, why not, you know? I mean, get them our books, you never know. <laughs> never know what God could do. Um, so, uh, you know, again, I think you would need to pray and fast and, 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 and think about, you know, the consequences of this and, and, and knowing that, um, uh, you know, that what we want more than anything else, you know, is that they would come to know Jesus Christ. And sometimes if you, something happens and you shut that door, then you'll have no opportunity to share Christ to them. Thank you for encouraging us to see God in that. Yeah. Uh, the next question, uh, what do you say when people bring up that Jesus was gay or possibly could have been gay? I've heard people say he never married and he was always around 12 guys, etc. Yeah, yeah. So one, um, so are you, I, I mean, I, I would just... It's funny because um, gay community um, does not want people to stereotype people who are gay, right? Don't, don't say that, you know, you, know, you know, just because a guy is effeminate that they're gay. But then they use that stereotype, you know, in the other way. And it's like, so you're saying that just because Jesus was always with guys that he was gay. And I, I would actually just say, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but every, um, in the Greco-Roman period, every Greek philosopher, um, every school, they didn't have schools. All they had 
I mean, they call them schools, uh, academies. It was, it was not like a building. It was one teacher. And he had lots of people following. And, and they were just all men then because at that time, you know, I mean, that's a whole other talk. But, uh, but there, uh, it was just, so, you know, then, 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 you, then you would have to say, then you have to say Philo, or you would have to say Plato was gay. You have to say Socrates was gay. You have to say Diogenes was gay. Yeah, all, these, all these were gay. So, I mean, that's how I'd respond. But. Uh, so, this one you, you've already said, too, would probably take a whole hour-long talk. Guess, <laughs> so you can answer this uh, however long or short you'd like to. Um, but it's, I'll, I'll, there's a couple of them. The question's kind of different, but we grouped it. Uh, so, Genesis 1 talks about how God's made people male and female. Um, how do we... Uh, interact with people who would identify as intersex or transgender. Yeah. So uh, let me explain because maybe not everyone understands um, this. Intersex is now the the term that uh, maybe in the past uh, the term hermaphrodite was used, but that's not really an accurate term, and, and it was too narrow of an understanding. So intersex is more just broader, uh, where a person, for whatever reason, could be genetics, could be uh, hormonal, could be more, you know, where... I mean, there's all these different reasons why a person could be intersex. A person who is intersex uh, is born with vague sexual genitalia, sexual organs. So... Um, Either their male sexual organs are not fully developed, or their female sexual organs are um, are larger. Okay, so um, in biology, in human uh, human biology and human embryology, um, all embryos actually start out female. In a sense, I mean, not start out female, but I mean. From the anatomical, if you're just looking, you wouldn't really know. I mean, if you do a genetic test, you would know because X, Y chromosome. But then because of the, X, uh, the Y chromosome in, in males, uh, it begins uh, uh, releasing more hormones and testosterone. And then that is where uh, the male um, sexual organ develops. So in intersex, what happens is somehow that, that is stunted, and so the male doesn't really fully develop their male uh, genitalia, or the female genitalia maybe is, there is maybe a, sometimes a you know, resurgence of some testosterone or some other male hormones, and then the female genitalia is you know, a little larger and maybe look like you know, a mix between a male and a female. So um, the... That is the phenomenon of intersex. So it's a physical uh, reality that can be um, tested. You know, it, you can physically see it. You can uh, actually even test to see that maybe there's something genetically wrong. Um, and so that's what that was. So in the past, what doctors usually did was when they see that, they would actually do surgery and they would make the baby female because it's always easier to take away than, than to add. Um, the problem with that is later on in life, these, these girls that grew up, then, you know, grew up and they were like, you know what, I always thought I was a boy. Or, or, they or, or then they became, began living as lesbians, you know, or then they became transgender. So, or, you know, then, then they tried to, but actually all along they were probably boys along with just with uh, smaller sexual organs. The good thing is now pediatricians uh, don't do that anymore. 
they actually don't do surgery, which I think is the right thing. I think it's best just, just don't do that. So that's intersex. Transgenderism, the problem is that oftentimes people conflate intersex with transgenderism. They're both two totally different phenomenons. What, I, what you hear oftentimes is people say, well, look, there's intersex. People were like, they're in between. And so therefore, that's why transgenderism should be you know, okay. Intersex is not a moral issue, and so transgenderism is not a moral issue. The problem is they're, they're trying to make these analogous, and they're not. Intersex is a completely physical reality that you can see at birth. Transgenderism is not. It's not a physical genetic reality. It's a psychological reality. Transgenderism is when a person believes, feels that he or she is the opposite sex. So this is where transgenderism, they talk about two things, sex and gender, which used to be synonymous. They're not anymore. Sex is your physical male or female, genetics, and that's physical genetics. You look at your sex organs, are you male or female? Gender is not your physical genetic characteristics of male or female. Gender is what you believe you, you are. It's a psychological reality. So I believe I'm male. I feel like I'm a male. I've always knew that I'm a male. And that actually matches my biological sex. So the world would call me cisgender. I just call myself, I'm me. Yeah, I, mean, I don't like those terms. But, um, and, but when a person's biological sex conflicts with their psychological gender, meaning if a guy, a person is born male, but they grew up feeling like they're female, we call that transgender. So it's transgender and cisgender. Cisgender is, they line up, most of you guys are cisgender, meaning you're born a woman, you view yourself as a woman, you're born, yourself, born as a man, you view yourself as a man. So transgenderism is a totally different reality than intersex, okay? Um, so how do we deal with that? I mean, intersex, obviously, that's not a moral issue. I mean, uh, the, the problem is people say, there's a reality of intersex, so therefore, this is, this is where queer theory comes along. Queer theory believes that um, all these binary systems, male, female, gay, straight, are wrong. They're all social constructs. It's, it's postmodernism. You guys know what postmodernism is, where there's no, there's no absolutes? Well, this is taking it to the extreme. That's where we're at today, queer theory. Queer theory is the fruit of postmodernism, where po queer theory believes there's no absolutes, there's no binary systems, there's no male or female, we're just all, actually you're only female because you think you are, or society told you you're female. That, that's what queer theory believes, crazy. Um, and uh, so everything's a social construct, and just because you think you're a woman doesn't really mean you're a woman, you could be whatever you want. That's kind of queer theory. Um, but they always go to intersex and say, well, because there's intersex, that means there is really no male-female binary system. See, see how they kind of use that argument to try to get to there? The problem is, just because we have anomalies, you know what anomaly is? It's, you know, when you have, for example, we're all supposed to have a certain amount of um, chromosomes, right? When there's an extra chromosome, we will call that um, Down syndrome, right? Just because you have that extra chromosome, does that now mean that, well, we don't really know how many chromosomes a, man, a human is supposed to have? No, just because there's an anomaly doesn't mean that there's no, no standard, okay? So that's the problem with that thought about intersex. Um, there still is male and female, but of course there's always anomalies. Transgenderism, the issue with transgenderism is, especially when you look at the Bible, is there's no specific text 
or passage talking about transgenderism. We only have a couple passages in the Old Testament that talk about cross-dressing. A man should not wear woman's clothing. But that's not transgenderism. That's cross-dressing. Different, but sometimes overlapping phenomenons. Um, the issue with transgenderism is that we can't address it with any Bible passage like we can with, with homosexuality, right? But though we can't address it with any specific passage, we can address it theologically. We can look at the whole Bible and say, does the whole Bible, because the difference between like biblical and theological, I'm giving you guys a lot of like seminary, so I hope this is okay. The difference between biblical and theological is biblical, you look at like a certain passage, a certain chapter, and then you say what it says, okay? Theological is you look at the whole Bible and say, what does the whole Bible say about one topic, okay? So that's the difference between theological and biblical. Think, think this way. Biblical is the trees. Theological is the forest. Okay? So, where was I? Uh, so, transgenderism, though you don't have any biblical text, tree, talking about transgenderism, the forest, theology, talks about transgenderism. And it's this. What place, what priority does the Bible say does theology say that we should place upon what we think? What priority should we as Christians place upon what we feel? When I read the whole Bible, it tells me things like, take every thought captive. It doesn't say take some thoughts captive. Doesn't even say most thoughts captive. Every thought captive. Why? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all else. I hate to break the news to you. Who can know it? Romans 12, 2 says, do not, conform, do, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So that's what, what the Bible has to say about transgenderism. Because transgenderism, this is, this is what um, Chaz Bono, you remember Chastity Bono, Chaz Bono now? When he came out as transgender, he made the whole circuit around the TV shows and stuff, and he said something that, was, that, that I think really hit the nail on the head. He said, gender, remember the difference between sex and gender? Gender is not something determined between the legs. Gender is something determined between the ears. Meaning, if you think something, it's your truth. That's postmodernism in a nutshell. What does the Bible say about that? Take every thought captive. Just because you feel something, surrender it to Christ. Just because you think something doesn't mean it's true or reality. That's powerful. So we've hit our magical number. It's about 9.20. So you did an excellent job tonight. So, um, and I know many of you will want to greet him and shake a hand uh, with Christopher on the way out. If we could keep those, you know, if we can, concise so we can get him some rest tonight. So I just want to thank you for coming. Again, there were leaders from different churches here. We are so welcome, or so glad that you came to be with us. 
uh, there are many of you that are part of the Parkview family here, and I just want to, you'll be hearing about these kind of themes in the next few weeks, but if there were some things that um, Christopher said tonight that really stuck a, struck a chord in you, I just want you to know um, the leadership here. Um, we've been reading Dr. Yuan's book and, and preparing. We would love to meet with you, talk with you. If there, We want to be a safe place to talk about any of these topics uh, that Christopher referred to. So we want to be that church. And I know the other churches represented here, that's why they're here too. We want to walk in truth and grace. So please, um, if you have any, any questions about any of these things for you personally or somebody in your life, we would love to be that place for you. So in fact, next Sunday, uh, at the 8 o'clock hour and the 11 o'clock hour in the atrium. We have several leaders and staff here just there ready to, re to go through any of this material or answer your questions. And we won't be nearly as good as Christopher Yuan, um, but we feel called as, as God's leaders in your life to, to be there to listen to you, to pray with you. So I just want you to know that. And um, so I just echo, I just love uh, how Christopher Yuan brought the word to us tonight. He did, did an excellent job. So... Um, thank you. Sorry we couldn't get to all the questions. Let me pray for us tonight, and um, then we, we will be dismissed here. So, uh, Father, we just thank you so much for the work that you have done in the Yuan family, and we have heard so much tonight. And thank you so much for your word, that you are a father who loves us, that you have designed us with a loving design, a beautiful design, and that you are a loving designer, and that the plan you have for every one of us uh, is, is amazing. And I pray that we would be diligent tonight. Uh, to examine the scriptures and to take so many of these challenges that Christopher laid out to us, that we be men and women, that we be students who identify ourselves as followers of Jesus, that we look at you as being our loving designer. We want to get to know you and your design and your plan better and better. So there, may there be a new hunger tonight in us to dig into your word, to find out what you say about us. And may there be a hunger in our lives to truly seek you, to pray to you, even, even to fast for those that we love in our lives, that there would be a diligence about pursuing you with our whole heart, because you're so worthy of that. You are a father who loves every one of us deeply in this room. So blow us away with your love and help us pursue you and your design for our lives. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great night. Thank you.